What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is Derek Hughes. Derek is the stand-up magician. You may know him because you've seen him do his comedy magic act on America's Got Talent last year. He was a top 10 finalist, made it to the live rounds last year. He did a phenomenal job, and we talk about it in the episode. We also talk about the importance of scripting versus spontaneity when you're on stage and performing, the difference between being funny and telling jokes, and he shares some personal stories about his growth as a magician, starting out in magic, having a family, tailoring a show to an audience, and more. It's a really wonderful episode, and I'm super excited for you to listen to it. I know you're going to love it. Also, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, tomorrow is the big day. We're relaunching artofmagic.com. It's huge. We've made so many improvements. It's really unbelievable. The site looks absolutely amazing. Delicious, even, if I may say so myself. I couldn't be more proud of the work that's gone into it over the last year. It's amazing. You guys are going to love it. There's a lot of new functionality in sorting. There's a membership feature that I'm super proud of and incredibly excited about. And I'm excited to hear all of your feedback. You can email me podcast at Art of Magic to talk about the episode, or you can email me contact at Art of Magic to discuss your thoughts on the new website. Of course, make sure you're signed up for our newsletter so you can be there when the show opens tomorrow morning and follow us on all the social media channels, instagram.com slash treasury of wonder and slash magical thinking podcast to follow the show. Make sure to join the Facebook group by searching magical thinking and give us a like on Facebook as well for both the podcast and artofmagic.com. I would also really appreciate it if you would go to patreon.com slash magical thinking that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash magical thinking to see behind the scenes on the show, hear more of my thoughts in regards to magic and style, and to have the opportunity to sit down and chat with me for half an hour or an hour. That's up to you. Anyway, get into this episode. I'm super excited. Derek is a wonderful, hilarious magician and a kind, humble, amazing person. Go follow him on all the social media channels as well to make sure that you're up to date on what he's doing. He's touring constantly, and you might be able to see him in a city near you. Just search Stand Up Magician on any of the social networks. Anyway, get into Derek's episode. Derek Hughes, he's amazing. I love this episode. Enjoy. Of cardistry, as I understand it, is shareware. Yes. It's it's not proprietary. It's not hey, that's my move. It's like take my move. Yes. And build. And it's beautiful. <laughs> like I really love that because uh, magic is kind of magic's petty. <laughs> Magic is petty. It's petty. But I'll tell you, I I don't know. Are there cardisters, cardists, who who have an act of cardistry that is unique to them that go out and make a living doing that act out in the world? Like they're getting booked to do their act? Not for, uh, no. Mostly for like commercials and stuff. Sure. But I also don't know that... I don't know that cardistry is a performance art. Right. Like. So thus why magic is petty is because when someone takes your bit against your will, that's yeah. that you worked hard to be the, the generator of. Yeah, yeah. And it's part of your signature act that you make your living from. Yes. I can see why people beef up and they're like, yo. Absolutely. Get away from my totally. my stuff because that's you're taking money out of my kid's mouth. Oh, How'd absolutely. You How'd you do that? <laughs> Up and out. No, and that I think 
I think as far as like stealing is concerned, magic has a lot to learn from comedy in that way. But when somebody gets all uppity about who originally did this kind of card slight, and oh, like Marvel shit, with, like yeah, like all of that is so ridiculous everything. to me. Sure, sure. Um, and that's mostly where I'm coming from as a close-up guy. But I am hundred percent with you when it comes to making a living doing an act, especially like any anything when you're on a stage is way more. I, I, to me, it's more important because as a close-up person, it's not about the pers- it's it's not about like the the ethereal nature of your character. It's more about connecting individually with people in a moment. Right. Which I'm not saying you can't do that on the stage, but when you're performing, but you're framing that moment in, in theatrical terms. Yes. Yeah. But when you're yeah when you're a performer touring the country, there's like um. There's very much a public element to you that has to be your individual thing. So yeah, as far as stealing is concerned and ripping people off, but I don't think cardistry is that. I don't think it'll ever be a no. It's it's. I think thing. integral to the culture is yeah. that it. Oh right, right, sure. Yeah. yeah, it seems more like a a a catalyst for jamming, yes, and communing, yeah, and sharing, and it's perfect for Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, never has anything been more perfect, you know, yeah. than beautiful fingers dancing with objects. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. We're in it. This is it. Oh, great. We're doing it. Well, <laughs> you want to tell people where we are? <laughs> yeah, please. We're, uh, we're sitting in the uh, house section of the Palace of Mystery between the brunch shows and the evening shows. At the very beginning of July. Yeah. I've been working this week uh, here in the palace emceeing, and I did the brunch shows this weekend because I got kids to feed, so <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take anything I can get. <laughs> this is my fourth time to the castle this week. That is a record for me. Wow. <laughs> You're a good man. Because Nick DeFat was sleeping on my couch. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You dropped him off at my house. <laughs> I know. I was just leaving in my sweat clothes, and uh, I saw him and Rob the balloon guy waiting for their Ubers. I was like, hop in. <laughs> Rob had to squeeze between the uh, the car seats in the back, the kid car seats in the back seat. <laughs> He's so petite, he probably could have fit in one of them. <laughs> been safer. Uh, probably so. Yeah, Nick's a good Minnesota boy. That's right. Yeah. Oh yeah, you guys, you guys are from the same part. Of- we are, but we didn't know each other there. You know, we're 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 probably a generation. Mm-hmm. There's a generation between our generations, uh, almost. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so I'd heard about him through some friends out in Minnesota, saying he was doing some fun, funny stuff. And then I saw um, Steve Bargatze did a a set out at Matt King's house for the Kentucky Derby party. Yeah, Mac has an annual Kentucky Derby party, and he always gets. Suckers, some friend, <laughs> into uh, doing a show. I've been a part of that uh, that uh, rough crowd. I mean, imagine you're doing your magic show for the greatest magicians in the world, <laughs> and they're all half drunk, and it's hot and summer. Um, Sounds amazing. Yeah, Bagazzi. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always amazing. Um, Steve did. Uh, he's doing that hearing aid bit. Nick. Uh, yeah. Speaking of proprietary rights on bits. Yeah. I think they traded. They traded a bit, you know, because I saw I saw Nick do it. And I was like, "What?" <laughs> but uh, you saw Nick do it after Bar-Nazi yeah, did it. I did. 
And so you thought that Nick had I got was, it from Barnes Yeah, I was a little like, mm, Who's this might have kid? to Who's talk this to this young kid? guy. Yeah, like he's <laughs> representing my home turf. Uh, yeah. That, that hearing aid bed is phenomenal. <laughs> it's so great. If you're not familiar with it, both Steve Bargazzi and Nick DeFat. DeFat, yeah. Um, I prefer DeFat. That's fine. It makes me feel thinner. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> and they're the only two people on the planet who are allowed to do this bit. Uh, oh, what's that behind your ear? Like a coin from behind the ear. And then when they remove their hand from behind the spectator's head, they're holding a dangling hearing aid. <laughs> like, oh, sorry. Start talking loud into the hearing aid. It's so good. Nick is honestly probably the funniest person I've ever met. Just being around him. I never stop laughing. It's amazing. It's also really exhausting. <laughs> he's he's on. Yeah. Yep. Love you, Nick. But yes. you know, he's uh, definitely, you know, conscious of being funny, which yeah. is only going to serve him well in that, uh, you know, in that pursuit of whatever <laughs> whatever it is we pursue. Um, well, what are you pursuing? Let's stop talking well, about Nick. You know, uh, but I'll tell you. You know, it's. I haven't always there was a, when I was a younger person I was more on like all the time yeah. like I remember I went to a very small performing arts high school for one year and I actually it was it was a kind of a come to Jesus moment where one of the sort of the artsy cool kids you know I, there was a tight click of people who had done professional plays and they were like the the real the real artists yeah in my mind and uh, there was a party and I found out I wasn't invited, and you weren't invited to the art school party, <laughs> to the cool kids party. And I, yeah, I talked to this girl, but I was like, "Why? Why? Why?" Yeah. And she's like, "Well, you know, you're always on. You're always. It's a little exhausting being around you." Because I had to really hear that and be mm-hmm. like, "Oh, Jesus!" And slowly over time, kind of learned to like. I'm always thinking of jokes. I'm always thinking of something funny to say, but really pared down how often I spew and sort of ejaculate the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Ejaculate and come in the same sentence. Yes. Congratulations. Yes. Well, (laughs) you know, I have two very young boys at home, so I haven't had a lot of action recently. (laughs) So it's it is in the forefront. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Nick, I don't know that Nick is uh, on like some people are on. I think Nick is just one of the most naturally funny people just hanging out because I mean he did sleep on my couch it's not like he was on when he was in his underwear in the morning but like his he's just like that perfect amount of awkward that everything is just a little off and it's just hilarious to regular people you know and that's that's really great to a great observation um and it's something I'm always trying to clarify which is what is my point of view yeah you know, as an artist, as a performer, when people are watching me, what is my point of view? And I haven't clarified it. I've clarified it for specific routines, and I'll tell you, those routines vibrate at a higher frequency. They're stronger, they hit harder, and they're better. And I have to believe it's because I've decided and I have a working point of view that mm-hmm. can motivate my energy and my actions during those performance pieces. But an overall arcing character POV, as far as my persona to the public or my potential celebrity status, right? Um, I'd like to clarify that more. And I'm constantly in that process. It's so hard to see yourself from the center, from the eye of the storm. 
You know, it's so easy to look at someone from from outside, look at Nick perform and go, ah, yes, great. He's awkward, pasty, and self-deprecating and, uh, you know, fish out of water, yeah. right? And I think he has a stronger sense of, of that point of view mm-hmm. consciously. Yeah. So when he thinks of funny things, it's filtered through that persona mm-hmm. and is strong and funny right off the bat. He's already got this this compass, yeah. essentially. Yeah, because I think when you have, I was talking with Phil Van Tee about this just the other night, talking about the same thing, trying to clarify a point of view, you know? Because, I mean, I aspire to national stardom, you know? I'd love to be a relevant and, and important entity in our current culture. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can do that is if you have a point of view. If yeah. you are saying something that at least some subsection, if not the majority of our population can go, yeah, I feel that way too, or that guy speaks for me, or that really moves me or resonates me or heals me, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Phil was saying, yeah, when you clarify that POV, you you do write jokes. The jokes come faster and they're, and they're more spot on to your persona. And that's the dream, man. I'd love to be able to sit down and just jokes and bits and routines pour out of me yeah effortlessly that's boy that's <laughs> like uh you know streets of gold somewhere in that utopian future yeah not there yet how long have you been doing i most of my questions are just about comedy like we don't really have to talk about magic that much sure just because i think that magicians just can learn so much from comedy and so, like they go hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, really, you look at a you look at a strong joke and a strong magic routine. They're parallel experiences. There's a, a setup, sort of a premise that sets the the world, and then there is a surprising yet inevitable mm-hmm. finale. Ideally, yeah. The ideal punchline to a joke is a total surprise, but completely inevitable. Yes. Of course, that's how this was going to end, but I didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. And an okay joke is when you can kind of, you know, you can see the punchline coming. Still very satisfying, and you kind of feel a little smart yourself that, yeah, I knew where that was going to go. That's a good joke. That's a good joke. I would, I would have thought of that joke. <laughs> um, but the best ones are when it just slaps you upside the head, and it's but of course. Yeah. You know. And same with magic. Um, you saw my priority mail envelope. Mm-hmm. I think I've really found an inevitable but a surprising but inevitable conclusion to that calling that skeptic up on stage, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the audience has forgotten that a prediction has been committed to. Yeah. And so that moment when I say, but I made a commitment to your astonishment, it's so satisfying for me because mm-hmm. the whole audience goes collectively remembers. Yeah. Oh, shit. And it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's gorgeous. And let me tell you, going back to this idea of point of view, I did some writing at the top of the week, and I added that, I folded that writing into that routine, just an introduction to the moment I present the prediction and send it out into the audience, and it is this. I'm not just here to do little tricks to entertain you. I'm here to save magic. Yeah. I wrote that on Monday morning and added it to the act on Wednesday and goddamn if it doesn't if it doesn't amp that finale yeah a notch more and i'm just overwhelmed and elated and a little frustrated that you know i don't commit to that writing process on a more regular basis because mm-hmm. every effort towards understanding myself better leads to stronger work and better material how much collaboration do you do I wish more. 
Um, I dream of collaborating and having a tight group of friends that are sounding boards. Um, not a lot. Not as much as I'd like. Um, I have really tight friends who are um, sort of the filters that I run new ideas through or often the people to see routines for the first time. Uh, Handsome Jack, Rob Zabrecki, Derek Delgadio are kind of uh, my litmus test mm -hmm. for new, new ideas. Um, but do we get together and you know, really have solid work sessions on a regular basis? Uh, no. And I'd love that. Mm -hmm. you know, I'll tell you when I'm when I'm hired in a consulting capacity, you know, when I'm hired to be a, a thinker for someone else's vision and project, it's so easy yeah. <laughs> to dive into an eight-hour workday Monday through Friday and hit the office and you know no lunch break, order food in, and just ideas, 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 ideas. Because you know there's a there's power behind a paycheck. Sadly, yeah. as for me, as far as motivation and commitment. When it's my own time, mm -hmm. when I'm on my own dime, yeah. and I got the, you know, I got a four-year-old and a six-year-old right now who, my office is at home, so I can hear them call out, "Hey, Daddy, Daddy, are you out there?" You know, and my office door is shut. What am I going to do? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like an absentee father if I don't kind of poke my head out and say what. But that interrupts what flow. I know is a powerful flow. You yeah. know, committing for hours, like, and not not deviating you know when when your mind drifts getting back to the page or back to the rehearsal mirror back to whatever it is you're focused on during that two-hour session uh and i don't give myself that gift enough um i dream of luke germay used to do this great thing before he went back to the uk he was he would do a semi-regular mentalism workshop in las vegas and it was i, I attended it and it was you know not 10 people mm. maybe and it wasn't cheap you know um but it was great because it was a jam it wasn't just luke telling us stuff that he knows and he knows a lot it was everybody brainstorming around everybody else's routines and i mean really some great stuff came out of that a uh, couple days and i've had the the dream of like you know I, i've had some clients that have put me up at some pretty great resort style hotels around the country and every time I'm in like a, a real prime spot I think I should rent a couple rooms and invite a handful of buddies out to to help each other out for 72 hours you know kind of like um remember uh Amar and Daryl and Fleischer and uh I think Paul Harris did The Hedonists mm, no, no, uh, the, uh, Richard Kaufman published a book called the m magical hedonists or magic in the bahamas the the hedonists anyways they all went to the bahamas and wrote a book came up with routines over the course of a week and you know drank and smoked and got tan and what a great what it a great amazing. venue yeah, yeah, yeah let's do it come on elliot <laughs> let's do it i'm all for it yeah. sounds amazing i just i wonder you know who are the people in your life that help you understand yourself better because I know for me, I, I, I feel similarly to you when it's like when I'm working for someone else, when I have someone else's vision, I can very easily sculpt it. I know what it is. They can't part it down. I can help and I can add to it and stuff like that. But then for myself, uh, it's far more difficult. So, uh, you know, people that I – when I'm trying to understand myself, I basically look to the people around me to – 
see what it is I'm doing to and for them and go, why am I doing that? What is that about? What's that? Where does that come from? And I wonder... Do you have an example? Um, so I know that I am a, a fixer person. So like if somebody has a problem, I want to fix it. And just from a, not necessarily from a performance standpoint, but I know that like when I'm trying to understand myself and be better at whatever it is I'm doing, I look at why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, so we're about to relaunch Art of Magic. Uh, we've redesigned it from the ground up and added a bunch of new functionality and some other stuff. And uh, there was a problem that we were having and I was trying so hard to fix the problem instead of pivoting and I, I had to stop and kind of assess and go well is that even necessary to do maybe I should switch a different way and it helped me understand that I this thing that I'm really good at which is fixing people fixing problems fixing things like that it helped me understand that that even even though that's really valuable it's not something that I need to always be doing and so I maybe should pivot to a different thing and maybe fix it by changing it okay and so that's an interesting thing for me to think about so then when i go and do magic it's like all right i know that i have this idea of what it is i want but i can't impose that on my audience so maybe i have to change and be malleable for whatever it is that they need that's i think that's a, a wise epiphany you know uh something about something that works to my detriment in writing new material is if I have a gift, it's being present and alive with each audience. Mm -hmm. And I say to my detriment because even if my routine isn't fully polished or I haven't totally locked the script down from years of stage time, I know that it's still going to be pretty good. Yeah. And that's dangerous, you know, as far as my discipline goes. But I feel so blessed that I, I have the gift of, of being able to observe and feel where a group is and shift a little mm -hmm. to go down that road. I mean, you saw a prime example of that today <laughs> in the last of my three brunch shows this afternoon. I... Uh, I called on a young girl early in the show to just say stop and pick a card. And I did make a joke. Her name was Robbie. And uh, very quick I responded, so your parents wanted a son. And it got a wonderful laugh because she has a boy's name and she's a girl. And we just blew past it and went on with the trick. Uh, I called a boy that was sitting behind her up on stage to help me. And soon after I called him up, I saw her leave her seat and go three rows back and sit on her dad's lap. I called her, called her out, like wondering, like, what's going on? Maybe I can find some comedy with this, yeah. you know, because you got to see what's happening and call it out. Because anything that happens during a show, anything that happens, a light flickers, a siren goes by outside, anything, everybody knows it happens. Yeah. No one doesn't know it happens. So a big rule in my mind right off the bat is if something happens off script, I got to embrace it, acknowledge it in some way, shape, or form, yeah. even if it's just turning my head or looking. Or, But in this instance, I was like, hey, Robbie, where are you going? Where are you going, Robbie? You know, thinking maybe she had to go potty and I could make a funny pee joke out of it. Or, But what? She was, she was crying. And she wasn't crying. I'll tell you, I know for a fact she wasn't crying because I said her parents wanted a son. Yeah. 
But that's what the audience, I think, maybe thought. Yes. She was crying because she wanted to be picked on stage. She wanted to go on stage. Because if you recall, when I said, what's your name? She was immediately, Robbie! She yep. was like, so ready. You know, like, I'm in the front row and I'm, I'm going to be called on stage to Magic Castle. And then she wasn't. Yeah. And I think that deflation, she's just like my son Edward, who's a huge showboat. And if, if the show doesn't go his way, he cries, slams doors, and cut, blocks you out. <laughs> you know, angry. And... I observed that, and I didn't win that audience back in that first set fully. I plowed yeah. through solid material, acknowledged the kid, talked to Robbie briefly, mentioned a dollar bill, mm -hmm. and then let it go, introduced the next act. When I came back, lights came up. I said, Robbie, did you get that dollar? Not aggressively, but like really feeling that energy. I acknowledged, I, I told everyone how she reminded me of my son, mm -hmm. not in a joke way, because I realized that could have been people thinking the name yeah. thing again. I said it's because my son also has a very sensitive spirit. So now they know I'm compassionate. They know you're a dad. They know that no, you're dad. not a malicious, yes. weird, magic dude. Yes. And you're relating uh, to the audience. And then I talked to her, and I was like, hey, do you have a dollar? No. Do you want to, do you have someone who can it? Could you find a dollar? No, no, no. Okay, well, um, I'd really love to invite you on stage to do a magic trick just for you. And if you, maybe if uh, someone could give you a dollar, would you do that? And I was sorry. She's like, okay. Yeah. Thank God. Yep. Thank God I can win this audience back and be a hero, not a douchebag. <laughs> um, but I was only able to see what this girl needed and give her that by through i guess that gift of being able to perceive and be present you know i think a real danger with you know i talk we started talking right off the bat about you know scripting and how i want to do more scripting and the importance of scripting um, but there's also a danger in locking your script down mm -hmm. where it becomes you know might as well watch it's a video it's not alive anymore yeah. it's not alive and you know that is that is the only reason we go see anything live anymore. We have so many options through streaming media, not at home, but in our pocket. Why Why am I going to pay any anybody talking to me through a microphone? Why am I going to pay them any attention? Only because they're real, alive, present, and there's a danger that something really unexpected might happen. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, being present is it's everything. Eugene Berger, huge disciple of Eugene Berger. Uh, wonderful mentor of mine. I was lucky that I lived in Minneapolis, which was a frequent lecturing spot because it was close to Chicago for him when I was coming up. And I would always, always go to his lecture, do the extra workshop, buy the new book or whatever, devour it instantly, and corral him for private lessons. And he charged a lot. And at one time, years into our relationship, I said, you really charge a lot. And he's like, well, if I didn't, you wouldn't listen. And it goes back to that Luke Germay workshop, right? Where it's like you're paying a lot of money. Well, you're going to, guess what? You're going to grow. This is serious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're not invested, then there's something psychological. You're not going to... What's the motivation of the paycheck, like you said? Earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So Eugene's thing was the script is there for when the show doesn't happen. I thought that was an amazing lesson. Yeah. The show is two human beings experiencing wonder. And when, when it doesn't happen when they're not ready to when they're not as vulnerable as you are to, to show up well at least you have funny jokes and a solid routine with a clear finale and you can say thank you good night yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i wait i like that sometimes people are done and then they aren't done anymore and that's where the gold is sometimes, sometimes. i'm not saying what you just said was that gold because it was beautiful no 
I want to very selfishly ask you about transitions in material because this week you were hosting, and yeah. when you're so you're just kind of coming out and doing a bit, mm-hmm. and then you come back out and you do you either finish up that bit or you do another bit. What is it like when you're on tour and you're performing a, a full? You're doing your whole act. Sure. What, how do you transition material? What is that arc of the? the thing sure. Like? I'm a. I mean, I'm a huge uh, proponent of uh, a real, a real solid set list, and I keep on my phone. I'll show you. You know, in my in the notes section of my phone, I have. You know, the top is set list, and I cut and paste. So this is you know the Palace of Mystery, and then it's the brunch shows, mm-hmm. and it's uh, what I'm planning on doing in in those sets and so pre predetermining I know it sounds ridiculous but I do feel there's a lot of performers that maybe don't do things in the same order all the time or they don't predetermine how they're go- which order they're going to do stuff in and there's a little breathing room more breathing room for jokes in my act than there are actual magic routines because what I've done in my full hour show is um, I've structured my set list so there's an unfolding it's almost like one routine opens the door to a conversation that leads to logically the next routine an example um, sort of a non sequitur you know and also I break I break the act up into um, sections segments like blocks mm-hmm. and those blocks are more malleable but the blocks tend to stay pretty consistent as they are um, that was going to comedy there was a um, comedy manager that I session sessioned with uh, a little bit and the greatest thing I gleaned from our time together was to develop stand-up material in seven-minute blocks and this is his logic uh, TV spots tend to be at the max seven minutes yeah um, in our current culture watching television the standard commercial break is seven minutes before your next commercial break so seven minutes is what our culture is used to <sighs> taking a breath that's when we our mind takes a break so build a routine that has jokes and progressive callbacks leading to a crescendo finale almost closer mm-hmm. moment at seven minutes and then a sip of beer readjust introduce the next uh, premise which leads into the next seven minute block and you know his idea being develop a killer seven that's just undeniable like seven minutes that just destroys every audience mm-hmm. inevitably killer material then shelf it and work on that next seven minutes and then you put those two together and now you have a killer 14 minutes Yeah, and then you work on the next seven and then 21 minutes and slowly but surely you're building you know these compartmentalized acts I guess acts and I do think of my larger show in terms of acts Mm. I'll even put sometimes in the set list if you were to scroll through you'd see sometimes it says act one and then it's a block of material act two the second block and act three you know almost like a theatrical journey Mm -hmm. Um, so here's an example of a segue uh, end of first block intro to the next block Um, it, it starts with a joke uh that is going to be a callback in that block. Mm-hmm. So I open with the with the joke, kind of, uh, and the joke springboards off of. I've just sent someone back to their seat at the mm-hmm. finale moment of the first block. Okay. Okay. So first block happens finale. It's the card to pocket. I send the woman back to their seat. 
Thank you so much. Were you nervous being up here? That's good. It's good to be nervous. And I do a joke about being nervous, mm-hmm. um, which leads in, seems like a non sequitur. Then I introduce uh, two paper bags and I do an invisible deck routine that I've been doing for years and years uh, involving imagination and reality in these two bags. And that finishes, they go back to their seat. And it's like, that. I mean, that's a killer trick, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just like, it's such a good trick. Yeah. So then I call that out. I, I, I interview the guy. It feels off the cuff. What just happened there? I'm trying to figure this out. Like, did I read your mind? Did I tell the future? So at the moment, this audience is like, the magician is asking him what happened? Like, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm still trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like, did you just thought of the card in your head? Do you believe in extra sensory perception? And now this is leading into a section. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a mentalism section, sort of a comedy mentalism section. Yeah. But so the segue is you know, springboarding in a logical fashion. And so the first mentalism routine, I call a litmus test, a warm up. And if this goes well, we'll go deeper. And uh, so, you know, we do that first routine and it goes well. I'm like, so now I'm excited. Yeah. Okay, tonight it might actually happen. And then that leads with enthusiasm into the finale of that block. Yep. The third routine in the mentalism section, so it it almost seems like I'm improvising to the audience, mm-hmm. but it's structured and it's set. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I'm dangerous. It's dangerous for me because th- that, let's just take that mentalism block in my show. It's real strong. It's real tight. It's surefire for me. I know launching into it that I'm not going to have to work too hard to entertain my audience during this routine because it's not new to me it's not uncomfortable it's not there's not a lot of variables and it it's got jokes that progressively over time have accumulated and that's the way for me a lot of comedy material develops it's not i don't sit down and write you know fully and fully formed Mm -hmm. hilarious routine right off the page it's more of a premise and idea and then through years of doing it again yeah. and again and again little tags little things happen off the cuff moments and i assiduously note everything that happens and add it to the act mm-hmm. until i look back on it and go i don't know how i wrote this <laughs> this is this is way better than anything i could make but i can call it mine um and nobody knows the difference <laughs> nobody knows the diff <laughs> uh so I get trapped, though. Mm-hmm. I get trapped. I don't leave room for new material mm. in my show because often I'm booked and it's often for an hour. And for me at this point in time, that's not a lot of time. Like I, you know, I don't. I'm I'm going at a pretty good pace just to get in what I want to get. Yeah, you know. And I need to, you know, Blaine really bitch slapped me a few years ago. We were talking on the phone, and uh, I was like, he's like, what are you doing? And uh, <laughs> like touring a lot of colleges, you know, really busy. And, and he's like, you know, he, he called, he, he was like, what, are you taking a lot of risks? Are you trying a lot of new shit? Are you failing out there? And I was like, no. And at the time, I really, I was doing my A game mm-hmm. every show because I'm of two thoughts. One is, when I'm getting a decent paycheck, I feel an onus to do my very best. Yeah. You know, I have a mantra that is, you know, I, I acknowledge every, every day 
when I'm going into any work situation, which is over deliver, just keeping that in the back of my mind. You know, I heard a quote once that was just so inspiring to me, which is uh, my success in life uh, depends on what I do after I do what I am expected to do. You know, that's great. It's the extra. It's mm-hmm. it's when we go the extra mile, the extra inch. Uh, we go beyond what anybody expected. We should or would or could do. Um, and I've over my forty six years now on this planet as a working entertainer, it it pays off. You know, people do acknowledge it. They do notice it, whether it's overt or not. You know, I think they I think they see that I'm. You know. I'm not desperate and trying to please. I'm saying I'm just, I'm giving everything I can in this moment. And um, so I feel like I'm kind of a cheater if I'm doing something that's only half ass mm-hmm. for a paying crowd. You know, I feel like it should be, that's, that's, that's for open mics. Yeah. But it's not. It's not. Blaine's right. I need to open with solid and I've been doing this more I've been allowing myself more you know I was inspired to open some windows and work and and then new routines are born of that um, through opening a space in the course of a full evening show to have some more experimental stuff um, I'm almost I'm in a place where I'm, I'm actually thinking about kind of acknowledging that to the audience have you ever seen Carrot Top no I haven't okay I highly recommend Carrot Top's show at the Excalibur. I don't remember, I mean, uh, sorry, at the um, the Pyramid. <laughs> the Luxor. The Luxor, thank you. I don't recommend any of the other shows at the Luxor. Chris <laughs> Angel. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Carrot Top, must see. Must see if you're an entertainer. He gets so much crap for being a hack. He is not a hack. Scott is a genius, and his act is a rock concert. For an hour, he is full of energy and blows your mind and is goofy and funny and hilarious and dirty. And the way he structured this show, it's beautiful. He's got uh, the stage has the the four, like in one is just his working space. Just upstage of that is uh, six trunks divided in the middle. So three stage right, three stage left, all in a row. Right, um, far stage right off to the side is a different trunk, and it says "new props" it's printed right on it. Okay, it's over there. And then in the shadows, under a under a cloth, up elevated above everything, is a single trunk. Okay, and in his act, he goes through the one trunk. Then you know, of the six that are up there, yeah. he goes through all of those progressively. Then he goes to the new props, which is half new props. Yeah. So some kill and some truly are new props. And that's, he's carved out a space to work out new shit every night. And then the big mysterious, that's his closer. And it's brilliant. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, I get it. I see it. I know where it's going. I, I can project a little bit how, you know, I, you know, I'm looking at my watch. I'm not too worried about it. Mm-hmm. I know we're going to get out of here when he gets to that last box. Um, There's a clear roadmap for the yeah. audience. And he uh, and that new prop box. That's kind of like I need my new prop, new space. new trick space, but maybe with a banner that says "new tricks" or "warning." You know, maybe putting out a a, a work cone. You know, <laughs> someone said, you know, Hard hat. work in progress. Yeah, that's pretty stupid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no self censorship. 
got to get it all out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just working at a comedy club over Easter in Minneapolis, and uh, I'm working on this routine with a nest of boxes. I've had the prop for years. I've done it for one-off clients, but I don't have a routine that's my regular routine with this prop. Mm-hmm. And it's a heavy prop. It's a bitch to travel with. So that's part of, you know, pretty much everything I do to date fits in a carry-on. And I'm just now exploring the the idea of checking a bag and expanding, you know. So stupid. I I'm, I just ordered it. I'm getting one of those banners, like a banner stand with my website and my name and a picture. It's so cheese dick. <laughs> but... I do know people watch me and love me, and they don't know who I am. Yeah. And I want, I need to drive traffic to my website, drive traffic to my social media, which is at standupmagician, www.standupmagician.com, Twitter, standupmagician, Instagram, standupmagician. You get the idea. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to brand here, people. Uh, so I ordered this banner stand, and I think I'm. <laughs> you can tell I'm really enthusiastic, uh, but I think I'm going to have that. If anything, I'll have it outside of the theater space as people are coming in, sure. or maybe, maybe because I also always do a meet and greet when mm-hmm. I leave. Like I run through the audience and then I shake hands after, which I think is huge. Yeah, I think it's a big, very important element of you know. Uh, I know people are making a lot of money doing VIP meet and greets, and and that's cool. But I. You know, when Copperfield, he used to do it. When he came to the Orpheum and sat, sat, you know, cross-legged on the, on the, you know, uh, merch counter, and sat there until everybody came through that line. Penn and Teller have done it from day one. They yep. meet every single person that wants to meet them after every single show, and that's that is over-delivering in my book. That is, you know, doing. What, what, that's what they're doing after they do what they are expected to do, which is the show you paid for. Yeah. Right? So I got this banner stand, and I think I'm going to need to check that. That's going to have to go into a check bag. Because you don't want to be seen carrying it? or I just don't have I'm room. Just kidding. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> just cut a hole out. I am not here to make it. you feel bad about that. <laughs> you know, I mean, we'll see how it goes. I no, I think it's great. I th- Look, it's just it one looks of the things so cheap. you have to do. It looks so cheap, you know. Um, but... I was getting ready for a theater show at Princeton, um, and I knew I needed, the, you know, the guy booking me was like, your show's amazing, it's amazing, but you got something bigger that could be bigger, bigger, anything bigger. And, uh, huge. I, yeah, <laughs> huge, uh, bigly, tremendous. Um, I got this nest of boxes, which theatrically kind of plays big. You know, it's hanging, it's high, it's, it's isolated, and a mm-hmm. thing is vanished, and then it's in the box, and it's, you know, it's got a big illusion vibe. So, I, I ran it at a comedy club a month before this theater gig, and no routine, literally just the trick. Yeah. Like, embarrassing, honestly, Elliot. You know, I'm borrowing a ring, vanishing it with no words, jokes, or premise, and then opening boxes, and there's the ring. Night one. Night two, uh, I, I did some writing on marriage. I was like, maybe this is about what the ring represents, what's your story, tell me your proposal. Um, can you imagine if it whoo, never happened, if you never met, if you never said yes, if you never asked? Sit in that for a while. Okay, well, that's kind of theatrically cool. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's this comic element of this really important object is now gone, and I'm moving on with the show. Yeah. Pretty standard, but, you know, I, I enjoyed that energy. Uh, and then 
that night the, the guy I was helping calling up to help bring the box down because the box is kind of heavy was whoever looked to me the strongest guy mm-hmm. like the youngest strongest guy to help third night how did the first night play against the second night or um, vice versa? Str- solid good trick yeah good trick wow wow and then moving on mm-hmm. um, the third night is when what you want to happen happens you know a light bulb went off in that I vanished her wedding ring, got their story, and then I called the husband on to help me with the boxes. Mm -hmm. And when he pulled out, there's four boxes, and the last box is quite small, and he pulled that last box out. And I just, I don't know where it came from, uh, but I said, and get on your knee. Mm -hmm. And ma'am, stand up. Yeah. Will you open that box? Is that your ring? Do you say yes? She said yes. So what I've done now, I've, I've seen it now. Oh, my God, this is great. I am getting the, the story of their proposal, and now I'm taking us all back there mm-hmm. for the finale of the trick, you know? Um, oh, and I'll tell you, one thing I wanted for sure, uh, something I consciously wanted to do with the routine and something I kind of wanted to start doing as an overall undercurrent or subtext to the whole act mm-hmm. is I want to get everyone laid. Nice. Okay? Yeah. Where does that come from? Greek comedy. Okay? In Greek tragedy and in Greek comedy. In tragedy, everyone dies. In Greek comedy, everyone gets laid. And that there's something primal about comedy is laughter. Yeah. Laughter is freedom. You don't laugh when you're being bombed. You don't laugh when you're starving. You laugh when there's hope. And hope, in its purest sense, is fucking. Yes. So... I want a hopeful energy as people are leaving. I want them positive, ebullient, and I want them to go back and fuck like bunnies. I love it. Yes. That's the best. Magic Cupid, but without saying it. Of course. Overtly, you know. So here's this, you know, wedding night, you know, their their proposal night. There was something. So that's where it's at now. And uh, I was going to do it here this week, and it just wasn't ready. Yeah. Um. And Magic Castle is a great place to experiment with stuff. Uh, I'll tell you, I've come into the parlor in the past with literally 20 minutes of all new material. You know, like a three, three routine progressive card set. And after the 21 performances in a week, I've got something that I can use. Yeah. Now, the audience in the parlor doesn't necessarily know that they're getting my C game, so to speak. And sometimes, against what else is booked in this venue, even a C game can seem like an A game. Yeah, I love I love everybody, but uh, the, you got to book a lot of acts in this place week after week after week, right? It is what it is. We can talk candidly. Um, but in the palace, there's something about the palace where I do feel a real responsibility to just fucking blow their minds mm-hmm. because these are the people who bought dinner. Yeah, and they've got guaranteed tickets into this. This is the sh- main show, and for many people, what happens in this room that we're sitting in right here, in these seats, what they witness from the seats we're sitting in right now, represents magic. Yep, for the rest of their life, possibly, you know. And you know, if it's subpar, they leave. Well, I went, I saw the best, and it was okay. Yeah, I don't want that. So with that thought in mind, I I kind of shelved the nest of boxes for this week, and you know I'll get back to it. Yeah. Maybe I'll bring it to 
my college gig in Billings next week. Billings, Montana. <laughs> Great fun. people. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I've never been. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, good beef. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I feel weird about, and I, okay, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to say this because I talk about the castle frequently on this show and I don't want anybody listening to think that I'm not a huge fan of this place. I love this place, but you do have to book a lot of acts. Not every magician is amazing. Um, but not every magician is even sometimes I'm blown away that they're not even ready to be in front of people. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it can be shocking sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I would not welcome the task of booking this place yeah. for the budget that you are allotted to attract acts. Yeah. I mean, I cut you off. No, I, but I agree. Uh, and so I, I feel this exactly what you said is that, you know, people come to the Magic Castle and it, it to non-magicians, this is the magic place. This is where you go to see the best magic in the world. Yeah, I saw David Copperfield. He has his own theater at MGM, but the Magic Castle has magic in the fucking name. Yeah. You know, it's a private club. It's so hard to get into. It's exclusive. They believe they're getting the best. And so, like, I I just, I have this weird feeling about, like, coming here and trying new stuff. Now, I get it if it's like a, like... In your case, you have so much flight time. You're a professional magician. You've done thousands and thousands of shows. Your C game is an A game for most people, right? So I think... I got to interrupt a little too. Like, I consciously, you know, often the rule of thumb is open strong with something tried and true, then try something experimental, and then close strong, right? yeah. I don't necessarily do that because I don't want the new material to stand out as drastically shittier. <laughs> so I kind of do it all, and it's all pretty good. Yeah. Was a, that was a really good show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's really funny. Uh, but, yeah, so I just, yeah, the, I feel like the, as a magician, you have to have a self-awareness about what it is you do and what you're capable of so that when you come to a place like this or you're performing in a place where people see you because we're ambassadors to the public we have to educate them on what good magic is that's right uh you know you you have a responsibility here at the castle to do good magic doesn't have to be fine art uh but you know you have to be good and i there's just a lot whatever it doesn't matter (laughs) no it's tough and it it you know, like any club, too, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a million different opinions and there's a million different reasons why people are invited to work here because it also it is a it is an it is a family. Mm-hmm. And there are people who they perform here once every couple years and it is the honor of their life mm-hmm. to be invited to be here. And they go back to their home community, you know, um, and they're the guy that gets to work the castle man you know i mean that's it's i think there's something great about that absolutely um but we we're not able to explain that in a in a you know rosetta stone given to each member uh, you know guest as they come in yeah you know uh they they believe that this place is being booked mm-hmm. by the top acts around the world for us to consume and and really it's you know there's a lot of there's a lot going on. There's friendship. There's camaraderie. There's grandfather clauses. There's 
you know, favors. There's politics. Yeah. Uh, and I and listen, Jack Oldfinger is a, is a, is a beautiful and a genius at what he does and how he does it. Yeah. I mean, he is like. He's like Neo in the Matrix, just <laughs> dodging bullets. He's like Neo and Morpheus combined into one because he has the wisdom of Morpheus uh, with the moves of Neo. Yeah. yeah. Here's something relating to uh, sort of comedy and magic. Um, over the last two years, I've started working in shorter, punchier magic effects. Mm-hmm strong moments almost non sequitur and it came from sort of looking at my straight stand-up material and I had jokes that had an opening bit with the premise and then a tag and a tag and a tag or story bits that kind of had multiple segments leading to a finale Um, and then I also had one-liner jokes jokes that just were kind of like set up punch boom big laugh moving on yeah nothing to do with anything else in any of it but I realized all of my magic was progressive routines the card to pocket there's three phases leading mm-hmm. to a climax the you know everything is multiple phases and I was like I want some one-liners to work in to texture the pace and the rhythm of the show mm-hmm. to keep it interesting and you know surprising yeah and that's been really I'm really glad I had that that idea to start trying to do that because it's really it's added a, a wonderful element to the show that totally fills it out more and makes it richer a richer experience that's cool yeah I so two things I'm going to write it, one of them down because I'm going to talk about the other one I don't know which one yet but uh, so fuck I just forgot both of them um, Here, ponder it. I'll, I'll tell you this story because I saw you take out that beautiful pen. I've been trying to think about a logo. Like, what kind of what would be the logo for Stand Up Magician? Yeah. I, I went to a website called 99designs. Michael Carbonaro recommended this sort of outsourcing website where you give your premise and a bunch of designers from all over the world, India, Indonesia, South America, New York, everywhere, um, contribute pitch possible logos and then you pick the ones you like best and give them notes and they kind of compete in a in a in a deadline period of time and then you you finally pick your logo well i didn't up the 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 prize money to attract some of their better designers going through some of the designs on 99 designs some of them are amazing it's like yeah i'd like something like this but that's going to at the time it you know I just wasn't ready to pull the trigger and spend that kind of money sure and everything that came back was so dumb it was like a a, a microphone stand that looked like a magic wand or a you know a, a smiling mouth coming out of a top hat stand up magician this is how people see us right and how do you combine like what I'm trying to communicate is my show is stand up Stand-up comedy on its own mm-hmm. and strong original magic on its own woven together seamlessly in a theatrical experience, right? Yeah. So my, my kids got me this pen for Christmas, this beautiful pen with a snake. That's um, so fucking cool. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's It's awesome. a snake clip, and the snake has two little gem eyes, okay? This beautiful writing instrument. And I dropped it, and one of the gems popped out. couldn't find it. 
you know so and i was like hey what about like a snake you know with like an eye patch like and i started this is cool like a like a snake like with a with a pirate patch maybe a skull and crossbones coiled with the tail and then i was like wait a minute one-eyed snake that can't be my logo <laughs> That's amazing. It was so bummed. <laughs> was so, I got so excited. I was like, this is it. Wait, one-eyed snake. I can't be that big of a dick. <laughs> what we, uh, Lovick was like, oh, maybe, maybe a snake with trousers. I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> it is a beautiful film. Isn't that gorgeous? Cool. Yeah. It's heavy. should write with it. I would love to. I'm a big journaler. Oh, yeah? Would, yeah. You, would you like to see that? Hey. Oh, that's a beautiful rollerball. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, this this is solid state. It's a fountain pen, tiny, almost like a space pen, but it screws on both ends. Yeah. This is beautiful. This is a very attractive pen. I like it a lot. It's got a great weight. I love the size of it, too. I don't like pins that are too long. No. That's what I like about that. Yeah. Pen. Yeah, that's this great. is great. <laughs> Just uh, hey, admiring good, each other's pens. Good pen is hard to find, you know? Thank you, sir. But I love, uh, I also love accessories, you know, like, I like a nice pen, a nice watch, mm -hmm. a nice tie clip, nice little things, touches. Yes, details. Yeah. That's important stuff. It's important. What, what details do you have in your act? The little tags, the little things that people go, oh, shit, this guy's a pro. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, when I was finishing up America's Got Talent, that was, that's a, a rough journey, you know? Like, you're working hard, they're not paying you, you know, canceling gigs in order to be available to do it. I regret none of that. Mm -hmm. But for years, I was, I was working with a, with a Puma bag, like a, like a gym bag was my show bag on stage, the mm -hmm. bag I would sit on a chair. And, you know... I, it had a quirky quality to it, you know, it almost looked like a, for years I had it with the Puma logo facing out, and then for the last couple of years using it, I spun it around so it was just a plain black bag, little gym looking bag. Um, and more than once people were like, bowling bag, it kind of had a bowling bag vibe, it wasn't, but it, it, it kind of had that uh, irregular trapezoid shape, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, but it was fine and it was functional and it was great and it worked for years and years. But I started thinking about... You remember Felix the Cat? Yes. Yeah? And he had his bag of tricks. Yep. And that bag of tricks has a step and repeat type of design on it mm -hmm. that, to me, totally is Louis Vuitton. Yes. Like, to me, that's a... It's not Louis Vuitton, but to me, that's a Louis Vuitton bag. That's yeah. his traveling bag. And so I actually went shopping at thrift stores in New York um, when Nothing to Hide was playing. Uh, me and Vanessa Lauren went out. And uh, she helped me shop. She she's good at shopping. <laughs> and she uh, we looked at a handful of these sort of used Louis Vuitton bags, and not, it wasn't quite right, quite right. So uh, I'm filling in for Mac a couple weeks after uh, AGT wraps up in Las Vegas, and then my family's there. And my mother happens to be visiting as well. So we're all there in Las Vegas, and we go shopping. And I just pull the trigger, and I go to the Louis Vuitton store, and I get myself my new show bag which is a baller 
Louis Vuitton, not a knockoff, real deal, super expensive, yeah, fucking bag, yes. And so that's fuck a, off bag of tricks. That's right a touch, yeah. That's yeah. the bag where it's like this guy walks on stage and it's like Jesus, you know, he's not fucking around. Yes, that's so um, important. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm totally paranoid. Uh, you know, I I actually pack that bag in my bag yeah. when I travel. But uh, a couple of times I've carried it like through airports. People, that bag could easily walk away. Yeah, I realized. Vanessa's like, you need to get it chipped. You mean like a pet? Yeah, like a pet. You chip your you chip your 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 goods. Yeah. Because um, there's eyes on that. You know, like hey, that's something. Um, it's funny. My mother uh, was with us. She was looking at kind of window shopping in a different store. I went in, pulled the trigger, bought the bag, and I had to wait about a half an hour because they're monographing the tag, right? They're putting a DH on my tag. Uh, and I'm waiting outside, and she comes up, and she's like, did you oh, did you buy a bag? And my mom's very sweet. She's like, uh, well, I, honey, I, I could have bought you a bag. <laughs> you know, like she's – I don't know what she feels guilty about, you know? I mean – yeah. Uh, but I'm like, uh, okay, sure, you can buy me the bag. And uh, she goes into the store. She shops around and looks at some stuff. She comes back out. She's like, maybe we can do an installment plan. <laughs> I'm like, Mom, I got the bag. <laughs> I let her off the hook. That's very funny. But, yeah, she was so dead serious. She's like, maybe we can do it in installments. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. <laughs> um one of the things that I was gonna ask you about is like you were talking about how when you structure the stuff uh, the the pieces the routines you know you finish one that leads into a conversation that then springboards into the next one it's like that's sort of commentary on the magic that's happening whereas like stand up comedy doesn't break the fourth wall unless you're you know acknowledging something that happens or you're doing crowd work but magic so in comedy you're kind of commenting on the world and your point of view in magic i guess you would be like using your point of view to comment on the magic that you've done which is what it sounds like sort of what you're doing i yes. don't know i just had that thought yes yes like, yes though you know i'm trying to i'm consciously trying to to work on some premises premise around magic that do relate to the world at large mm-hmm. In, in more of sort of the way stand-up I like does. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm working out a routine right now, which is basically, you know, a glorified book test. Um, but the whole idea is we're smartphones are making us dumb. Mm-hmm. You know, we're totally losing our ability uh, to do anything. And, uh, you know, I... I did a test run of this routine last December, and sort of the intro story was I told the story about leaving this very building. The first week I ever performed at the Magic Castle, uh, my second night, uh, I got, no, it was my first night, my first night ever performing in the parlor of prestidigitation. I left the club, went and had a nightcap uh, with a friend, and woo, pulled over, went to county, full on DUI. Like, got thrown in jail. Wow. Got out just in time to collect my car just before impound closed for the day. Didn't get home, didn't shower, didn't change my suit. Got back for my first show. 
in the parlor of Prestidigitation. <laughs> Same suit. I had to go in the kitchen and have uh, one of the Mexicans guy help me cut. Mexican guys cu- help cut off my wristband from County. I was like, "Hey, man, you got a scissors or a knife?" He's like, uh, "What?" And I showed him my wristband, and he's like, he smiles and nods. He's like, "Hey, <laughs> Jose, you got a knife?" <laughs> I got so much street cred <laughs> with the kitchen staff. Um, but the story was when I went to jail and woke up painfully sober with no phone no keys no anything on me and they you get your phone call elliot i could not remember a single number yeah the only number i remembered was mine and my the first number i ever learned my grandmother's yeah in minnesota she's not gonna help yeah i mean it was like this crazy moment like i my phone holds my numbers yeah so why remember them you use it or you lose it so this was this was I, I thought there was there's something here you know and there's something important here because this is what's happening to the world at large and what else are we losing what other skills are we losing you know I just drove past a bus stop and I saw five people all staring at a screen and they're in a group they're standing in a group and it's a sunny day and they're everyone's locked into their thing I mean I'm not saying anything that anybody hasn't noticed yeah. but the premise of the routine is Ladies and gentlemen, tonight I'm going to do everything my phone can do without my phone. <laughs> and so I remember some phone numbers. I poke some people. I like a guy. That's funny. Um, and then I do a map test. You know, Google Maps. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to use Archer's map. Uh, Archer's got a great, John Archer's got a great map map test. And then uh, uh, I have a book test that I do right now sometimes. And I'm thinking of like integrating that somehow, but without it being too repetitive, it's still it's still definitely on the work workbench. But the premise is strong and it's there. Yeah. And so, that's about the world at large, you know. And the magic, hopefully, is coming sort of organically mm-hmm. from uh, rather than being self-referential to my yeah. powers or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also played with this idea with uh, a routine I've been doing that I can teach people how to send a thought and that we lose that ability once we start to learn stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So it's about embracing, going back and embracing a child's state of mind. That's when we're open. And so I do some exercises and some funny things to help them embrace a child's state of mind. And it's been a great routine. Um, but I did it at a, a, just one night kind of off the cuff at the improv lab where I really embraced the premise. Like I came out and I dropped my phone in a Ziploc bag and then I wrapped it in a full roll of duct tape. And I was like, this is breaking the signal, okay? Because we're being tracked, okay? Like it's kind of a conspiracy theory angle. Yeah. Like the phones, the robots are are making us dumb. Mm-hmm. And we're, we all have the ability to communicate, you know, and have intuition that is right and intuition that will guide us. But we're losing the ability to trust that because we've created the technology to send a thought. I can send a thought to you using my thumbs. I can send you a thought 2,000 miles away instantly. So why do I need, so we need to practice and master the skills so when the robots take over, we can revolt, you know, mm-hmm. was the sort of the, the loose idea. Yeah. Um, I got I got some blank stares from that crowd, but uh, <laughs> but but I like the idea. Yeah, that's fun. What is it? I mean, how do you feel about the whole phone thing? 
I mean, for like, yeah, no, it's terrifying. And as a parent, you know, I have kids who are just starting to use iPads, and they can access, you know, they know the access code, and they can get in and start playing Angry Birds on their own. Mm-hmm. And right now, they're playing pretty innocuous games. You know, uh, um, there's a gang where a game where a panda makes food. Or another right. one, same same chain of games, same brand of games. Sniper Elite Four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but I, you know, I have an Xbox that my wife got me when we first met because I wanted to play one game, Bioshock. Yeah. I I was obsessed with the graphics and had heard it was wonderful, and I totally dove into that world. Um, but I was shocked after playing Bioshock and Bioshock Two, uh, how many hours of my life like like six hours would fly by like nothing yeah. six hours yeah and here we're talking earlier about how hard it is for me to sit down for two hours mm-hmm. and focus on new material but i could man you know power up and get to the next level uh and really i would you know you dream if you're gaming i don't know if you've gamed but you, when you dream you're dreaming in these corridors mm-hmm. you know it and that's gotta do something to our mind that's got to do something to how we're perceiving the world in some way, shape, or form. Um, and, you know, you see concert footage of people at any event now, and it's a sea of phones being held up recording. Who's watching this? Yeah. Who goes back to their home and says, ah, let me watch the concert I missed because I was filming it? Yeah. Um, it, I'm addicted too, though. I mean, we, we, are, we are really, really deep in it. And I'm I'm not I'm not entirely sure that it's not the robots. I mean, you know, I'm wearing this Fitbit, so somewhere there's a database that knows I'm not the first guy to kill. <laughs> you can keep me around for a while because I'm not much of a threat. I might be a drone. Maybe we could put me to work when that time comes. You know, and the guy that's got the, the prime cardio and the and the elite fitness, he I needs think to go. They're gonna take him out right off the bat. That's code one. Maybe there's a built-in you know burner on each one of these and <laughs> shock us to death instantly. Uh, there's a fantastic essay. Um, it's published by the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, the name of the philosopher escapes my mind right now, but it's called A Postmodern Fable is the name of the essay. And it's in a collection of essays. Uh, and it is really pretty fantastic meditation on the evolution of humanity. And I'm making quote marks when I say humanity. This guy's sort of realizing the, the general theme of the essay is, you know, our great crisis as a, as a species, as a race uh, came when science discovered undeniably the sun will burn out. Once we knew that, now we know we're doomed. Not immediately, not em- but but eventually and unavoidably, we need to come up with a plan. Yeah. Right? And that's sort of how he kicks it off. And he's talking about what humanity will look like in 2,000 years or what it will be is really up for debate. And maybe you know sort of evolving into a solar-based ai that can take knowledge as we understand it and build craft that can transport non-organic life to a new space i don't know you know i mean you know the phones man i mean maybe i really you know think maybe it's like part of the the robot revolution i mean we're 
I think the phone is the uh, it's the proof of concept, right? Tell me, tell me. So, like, you know, there was a point at which we weren't carrying around cell phones, and then they came out, and like a handful of people got them. And I was on board day one, not Early with the, not with the big block, yeah. But as soon as they were ha- that handheld Nokia that looked like a, like a wireless phone that would have a cradle at your phone mm-hmm. at home, but just you know buttons and a, a pull up antenna. College, I had that, you know, in '92. Yeah, right off the bat. So, and then, then we get the iPhone in 2007, 2008, 2007, and that revolutionizes everything. And it becomes the fastest-selling thing, essentially, in human history. Uh, don't check me on that. No, <laughs> but, but I mean, just legit. like you know, yeah, uh, and. Now everyone has something that is like an iPhone, if not an iPhone, that does most of everything for us. And I think that's the proof of concept uh, that the phone will will die. It's the it's the ease of access, not the the thing, not the block. So I think it's like this is what we have at the moment, but everybody's okay with having technology on them all the time which right. means implants and cybernetics and yeah the whole thing. right google glass yeah implanted in your eye yeah augmented reality as just the way it is but man you know next week i'm taking my boys to big bear great with a tent fuck yeah you know for three nights and i want to do that more yeah because i think like i've been here for this blip of time in the grand scheme of things and memories that i hold so close are many of them are nature based mm-hmm. you know a canoe trip yeah moments rock climbing you know th- yep. these laying sitting on a, a summer porch with screens open during a rainstorm and to, and falling asleep to the sound of that rain yeah and those moments don't happen when you're plugged in yeah it's funny you know what this makes me think of i'm holding up sort of the sleek black uh iphone here uh remember the opening sequence to 2001 yeah the monolith monolith it's it's the iphone yeah that's what the monkeys are freaking out about (laughs) (laughs) it's this smooth nondescript chunk of future perfection perfection yeah. And that's what the iPhone is, the illusion of perfection. It's such a good it's such a good thing. It is. <laughs> I mean, my god, you know, like it feels so real. You 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 look into these apps and each app is a is a pathway to a whole reality and boy, it feels legit, but it's yeah. it's code. It's code and colors. Yep. I had an experience one time where you may have seen this uh it's like a cartoon an illustrator drew this thing, but it was uh, a guy standing there looking at his phone, and his face was being sucked into the phone. It was like a straight suction of his face. Okay. And I saw that, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's commentary on blah, blah, blah. And I was walking down the street one day, and I saw a guy standing on a corner looking at his phone, and I got the feeling of that looking at this person. Ah. It was like 
It's like, you know how you're watching somebody watch something and you can tell where their depth perception is by just kind of looking at their eyes? Sure. He was looking through the phone. He was looking into it in the thing, and it felt like he was being sucked into it, and it fucking freaked me out. Sure. <laughs> Super weird. And so real. Yeah. Like, you you were you were a witness to that truth. That was really happening. Yeah. Um, I've had this thought, you know, I mean, you know, sooner or later, our obsession with uh, these, our phones is going to lead to uh, a resurgence of <laughs> predatory animals in urban areas. You know, I mean, like, you know, we're just, how, pray, we're just sitting there <laughs> ready to get jumped by a jaguar, That's you know, really easy eating, you know, <laughs> we become, we become complacent. Uh, what would be like the perfect prey animal to analogize to humans? The perfect prey? Yeah. Well, I mean, lemmings. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, we're just. Because what's crazy is I don't think people. The number one problem with, with the phone reality, with, with the illusion that it creates. The illusion that we are connected, the illusion that we do know things, um, is uh, it it interferes with the ability to really think. And I I do fear and feel people aren't not that they ever fully have, uh, but thinking for themselves on a real critical level, and that is so necessary. I mean, we we work in a profession that it's so it's so clear how easily and badly we can be deceived. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. I mean, we are easily fooled, and we are easily uh, convinced something is the truth that is not. And we live in this day and age where you know there's so many fucking people that need to be controlled just for safety, just for commerce, just for, you know, and, and, and that those systems of control are inevitably being manipulated by people who have self-serving agendas, mm -hmm. you know, power corrupts. And guess what power is? Money. Yep. Money is power. And do I want more money than I have? Hell yeah. Um, but I pray I never justify raping a civilization just so I can make an extra percentage mm -hmm. and you know i mean jesus the fucking phones are made in in these factories where there's suicide nets yeah outside the windows and we're willing to in, literally enslave people so i can have this wonderful device I, the answer is yes yeah now i'm ashamed thanks elliot <laughs> don't think about it yeah, don't that's, think. That's what we're being told is don't, don't think, think about it. Don't think. Don't think. Just be. Just yeah. be. Have the thing. I am working on a new. I've been. I've had a. Uh, I love the Gene Anderson paper tear, mm -hmm. and uh, I've had a routine with it for years. That's pretty strong. The effect, undeniable, um, for audiences, uh, but the routine is no longer totally my voice. I have a joke in it. Um, 
in a nutshell, I, I say I'm going to present the, this routine for you in, in the style of French symbolist drama. And then I, it's, it's goofy. What does this mean? What's he leading to? And it's like, you may ask why I'm doing this in French symbolist drama. Well, I studied theater at the University of Minnesota with a focus on French symbolist drama. And after four years of my life on $120,000, I'm going to use it in my magic show. It's a funny joke. Yeah. It's funnier when performed by a 30-year-old. Mm-hmm. College is not necessarily part of my world right now i'm yeah. a dad i'm a grown man you know so i've i have seen audiences have less of a visceral connection to the joke yeah it's clever and funny but it's not as potentially honest as it once was well yeah you're now too old and too deep into it to be snarky about the fact that you do a magic show yeah 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 yeah, yeah. exactly um so new routine brewing in my mind about fake news Oh, great. And I'm trying to find the words for it, but it's like, you know, read a headline, fake, 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 or yeah, I don't know what. And then, mm-hmm. the, but it's, but, but the news is, and something about sort of journalism in general, and maybe there's a, a Hippocratic oath for journalists. There, I, there must be. About, I think there is. Yeah. yeah um, sort of the moral code of a journalist, impartial, mm-hmm. you know, delivering the facts yeah. so we can be educated. About what is really happening. Yes. Uh, And having that be the really the punch of the restoration. But the truth is the truth. And there's no bending, twisting, tearing, or or lying about that. Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Something is in there. I need to spend two hours a day working on it. It's a good premise. And then, like, so how would you whittle away? Because we can look at that and say that's a great nugget of an idea it's powerful it's strong it moves people how do we make it so it's not preachy how do we make it so it's not condescending right like how would you if you were going to sit down how would you kind of deconstruct it and maybe try and chip away at it a little bit and put it into your voice so that you you get the the oomph of the importance of it without alienating the audience by sure yeah maybe uh you know, introducing the newspaper. Let's say this is this is a, an issue of the Wall Street Journal, um, printed newspaper, uh, an endangered species. Not just the print media, but the truth that's contained in it as well. Open the page, uh, and I would want to find some kind of. There's five tears, mm-hmm. so I'd want five headlines or five thoughts mm-hmm. or five ideas to represent each tear. So maybe each tear could be one thing that has led to the demise of the print media. Mm-hmm. You know, um, CNN, streaming news 24 hours a day. Shh. Yeah. Um, the, iPhone, the news service on my iPhone that chimes. Uh, shh. My Facebook feed. Shh. Mm-hmm. My Twitter feed. Um, being overwhelmed by a saturation of information with no ability to filter the truth from the untrue. You know, and then maybe talk about how the pieces are fragmented thoughts, unconnected. It's hard to know the truth mm-hmm. when you're getting it from every single direction. But but the truth is there. Maybe. Yeah. Some, something along those lines. But structuring it with the the with that effect, there's necessary actions mm-hmm. that have to take place. Yes. Paging, five tears, paging. So I would want to write in a way that organically justifies the actions. You know what I mean? Yes. I gotta write this down. 
<laughs> Thank you. You're helping me make movement on my my new idea. That's the goal. Text yes. me anytime. Got it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just interested about that. Pro- also, like, I was a close-up person for forever, and I stopped performing in college because uh, I didn't like. And it, this it's so privileged, but it was. Uh, I don't want to go do a show that I don't want to go do. And so I stopped performing for money. I started busking so I could go and do whatever I wanted to do. Where would you bus? Uh, there was a, a Saturday market. Really? Yeah. In in Monroe, Louisiana, and uh, on the riverfront. Now I'm curious about that because I I used to live on the Venice Boardwalk and I avoided the, the I had the the I you know the the desire to maybe go out and do some regular sets there and I never did mm-hmm. because I I always had it in the back of my mind that busking runs the risk of making you really aggressive. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way that I've seen people who do a lot of street performance come into a theatrical space and it's it's a lot. Yeah. Because of that venue where you are mm. do you did you sense that i that's really interesting that you say that and i absolutely see i can like imagine that i've seen buskers that would i don't imagine would do well on stage in a theatrical setting um i am not an aggressive person so the busking that i was doing was a little more tongue-in-cheek and i also made the audience build my crowd okay so what i'm what i mean is uh i would I'd set up my, my table, I'd have my pitch, and as people were walking by, I'd be like, hey, do you want to see Magic Trick? Just point to one or two people, maybe a couple, or a, you know, a small group, and bring them forward and go, look, I'm just doing one trick. If you like it, maybe I'll do a show. And so I do this trick. I did uh, Dean Dill's No Extras routine, which nice. is a fucking beautiful trick, and it looks like real magic. And it's up close. They're standing at the table. They're right there. And I go, if you like it, uh, Help me build up a crowd, get some people over here, and maybe we'll do a show. Okay. And so then I do the trick, and they're like, wow, that was really great. I'm like, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Why don't we Why don't we get some more people? Here, laugh and cheer and clap really loud. And you just hire them, essentially. You sure. You, you bribe them into to building your crowd for you. You just do that progressively, and then you end with the cups, and you fucking <laughs> yeah. pass the hat around and, and make money. But I was never like... I would bang the stick on the table and, you know, kind of drum up a little bit of uh, uh, noise and be a little more aggressive. But that was already into the show. But I was never a a pusher. I wasn't like, ah. Also because, like, again, I I was very privileged. I didn't need to make this money every day. Sure. I was doing this for my chops and to have these moments with people. Um, But, yeah, busking can be a very aggressive and snarky too. Uh, right. I uh, I had an amazing time being very rude to drunk people uh, <laughs> when I would do evening busking, and it was super fun. And I felt quick and alive, and there was a little bit of danger because you know you're on the street, man. Yeah, you're on the street, and that felt great. But uh, I didn't. That wasn't like. I liked doing that, but it was for fun. It wasn't like, this is not part of my character. I, I It was like, I'm just trying to bang out this material just to practice and have fun with it and just be out and do it as a release. And that was why I stopped doing gigs for money again is because I didn't want to, I didn't want it to feel like a job. I don't know. I'd like for you to speak to that a little bit, but I didn't want it to feel like a job. I didn't want to feel pressured to do this thing. Especially while I was in college and getting a degree and having a girlfriend and 
mm-hmm. friends and all mm-hmm. that stuff. It was like I, I wanted this will be just a fun thing for me. So I don't know why I started talking about. Well, it's interesting because I, I, you know, I've had my eyes opened a little bit to other options. For me, my philosophy has always been, in a nutshell, yes and. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've always felt like. Any any audience is a is a potential gift. Any performance opportunity has something to learn from it, and any paying opportunity is is a blessing as well. You know, um, I didn't come from means. I started. You know, I had I was very precocious and printed business cards at a very young age. You know, uh, right after you know like twelve. You know, yeah. uh, hustling the nursing home circuit in Minnesota. <laughs> And um, I would pretty much say yes to almost every job. Mm-hmm. And I still kind of have that philosophy. Um, and uh, referring shows to Derek Delgadio a, a few years ago here in L.A., you know, I'd get gigs that I was out of town and couldn't do. Local gigs, good paying gigs, one or two hours of roving close-up. Nothing for him. Mm-hmm. Easy, in the bag, you know, sleepwalk Mm -hmm. and he'd be like no i don't want to do it i'm like are you busy and he's like no i'm like well do you you need you need money right and at the time he wasn't he didn't have a gig yeah you know vanessa was busting her ass at a crappy job she didn't love and you know he was hammering away every day at you know at the at the rehearsal table Mm -hmm. but uh it's like well, why not and it's exactly what you're saying he didn't he didn't want to have to do it every time he did a corporate walk around gig he felt horrible about himself and about magic mm-hmm. because uh, to be honest you know i can go into a room and if it's the a particular crowd on a given night and you know maybe they're just not feeling the hues love and it's fine and pat on the head and thank you and here's the check thank you and you know but they're not really understanding what they're experiencing and the amount of time and energy that we've put into this we love it so much and we're so committed and it is potentially so powerful and it's just not finding its highest vibration in that framing mm-hmm. of a walk-around cocktail party. And Derek hated it, and he, he refused to do it. He, he knew he hated it, and he listened to his body, and he listened to his emotions, and was like, no, I don't feel good when I do it, so I'm not going to do it. And it was always a mystery to me. It's like, you know, swallow it. Swallow your pride and just, you know, make the extra money it, and move on. But Derek, what I observed in him as a friend uh watching him work through that those lean times was he was cultivating a real clear vision of how he wanted his magic to be framed Mm -hmm. in no uncertain terms and he refused to do it in any other way and thus he is now doing it that way yeah in spades like the faith of the power of saying no and waiting for what you really want to manifest i'm questioning maybe some of my choices you know because hey i'm making a living i'm a working professional i'm proud of what i do and my audiences really enjoy what i bring to the table Mm -hmm. am i where i hope or wish i would be at my age no i i don't suffer through that feeling i think i uh, a while back i might have suffered more of like 
you know, sort of, uh, I, I've let go of any desperation because I just really feel so blessed <laughs> that I get to be a, I have a, I have a Louis Vuitton bag full of tricks and I get <laughs> to make a living and feed my kids doing that. So what do I have to complain about? But it is, my, my friend's journey is a catalyst for me to really look at and think about what is my ideal vision? What would I ultimately really love the framing to be on a day-to-day basis? And maybe through having faith in that image, I can, I'll find my way. The doors will open mm-hmm. to those opportunities, you know? Because you got to, I mean, when you feel like shit, you feel like shit. When you leave a gig and it doesn't feel good, you got to know. You, you got to listen to that, you know, like, what's going on here? What's what's wrong with this picture? And then take action to feel better about it. Yeah. I felt horrible leaving, walking back to my hotel room after shooting Fool Us. Yeah? The taping went great. The routine was strong. Um, killed the audience. But I knew I wouldn't fool Penn and Teller with the routine. I had two routines that I potentially was going to do on that show. Yeah. One, I really thought might fool them. It was very clever, using some kind of veiled principles that, you know... Maybe ringing in a cooler might mess them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was boring and dry and didn't represent my voice. And the reason I wanted to do TV was to get quality footage yeah. for clients to want me to come and be at their event. Yeah. Right? And then I have this great routine that's fun and entertaining and, and awesome with jokes and energy. And I knew it, it wouldn't fool them. It wouldn't fool Teller. And uh, sure enough, did the routine, and they called me out on it in the way they do. And I'm like, you're right. Yep. Got me. And in that moment, it was like in front of all these people I just amazed. Wah, wah. You know, it was this yep. feeling, this huge deflation. Maybe it was just in my mind, but... As magicians from day one, our thesis, our goal, our our primary directive is to fool everybody, right? Mm-hmm. To be magic. And here, I, I was proven I wasn't. You know, mm-hmm. like it. I just it was a walk of shame. Yeah. Back to the hotel, like that didn't feel right. Funny, right? I I mean, I totally get what you're saying. It's so, so weird, like just to have to have them go. Not us. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, oh. And I knew that was going to be the deal, but I just didn't, I wasn't ready for. I think you made the right decision, absolutely. Oh, to do the entertaining routine? Yeah. 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 And, and I, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like you know you made the right decision, and that's what's fucked up about it, right? Is it like you know you did the correct thing, not just for yourself, yeah. but for everybody that watched it? Sure. But the whole premise of the show is a little – and that's that's another thing too is that like from what I've heard, producers and, and people putting on the show, they, they're kind of picky about the material because they want people watching the show to be entertained and interested. Oh, yeah. And it's not about fooling Penn and Teller, which is the premise of the show. And so right. it just sets this weird – to me, it sets this weird dynamic, right? It's really it's really off. It's It's – it's off on a core level, you know. It's it's better than Wizard Wars, <laughs> but it's 
it's still off. It's not the best framing for magic. I, it's a little depressing that in our culture right now, we live in a, in a contest-based yeah. environment where everything is a contest. Yeah. And they couldn't just pitch a show. It's like Penn & Teller present their favorite magicians. Yeah. That's not good enough. It's got to be Penn & Teller against. There has to be stakes. Their favorite magicians. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. But they're not. There's not. It's all bullshit. It's like uh, the the need the, the need for agitation to be agitated, you know. So so there's this idea of stakes when there's not stakes. Why? Yeah. It is. It's a weird time, you know. How and is? The, go ahead. Sorry. No. And then you know some of the people that fool them. It's like it's it's a it's a it's a it's a kind of a it's a disservice to magic, possibly. Yeah. I'm not. I haven't watched a ton of the show, so I, I'm speaking a little bit out of school. But I know some of the acts that have fooled them are not the strongest material or the strongest, the most entertaining mm -hmm. material. And the acts that say, I fooled Penn & Teller, are the acts that can more aggressively push for bookings. You know, because yeah. that's the prize, right? So you say, and we hired the guy that fooled Penn & Teller. Yeah. Rather than we hired the most entertaining, best act for our event yeah, program yeah. or whatever. Um, I'm not bitching. I'm just saying, like, so now are are these less than awesome acts with a real fooling element out there representing the best in our craft? Yeah. Again, I'm talking way out of school. I Maybe everybody that has fooled them is, is awesome. No. <laughs> uh, I know, and I know some are. Yeah, absolutely. some are absolutely amazing. Absolutely. You know, um, I just saw Gertner's thing. It was great. Oh, so good. Yeah, he's so good. Okay. I was, I got to see him. I was in Vegas, and I went to Penn and Teller show, and Gertner was the one that closed the show. Oh no way! So you saw that taping? Crazy. I didn't see the taping. I oh. saw the show where he fooled him, oh, and then he goes and closes oh, the show. Yes, okay. The prize. So the prize. Yeah. The hey, it's really funny. You know the prize. I, th I thought this was hilarious right from day one. You know the prize you win if you fool them. You get to perform on the Penn and Teller stage. Yeah. Do you know where the show tapes? The Penn and Teller stage. <laughs> so the sheer act of entering the competition, you attain the prize. That's really funny. <laughs> and what's the prize? You get to perform on the Penn and Teller stage. I already did that. <laughs> well, yeah. It's yeah. Well, I mean. That's the TV magic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was cool. I got to I got to meet him. I did a podcast with him. Uh, oh, great! The, I was just like, I'm a fan. Would you mind? And he was like, Yeah, I've got a couple hours tomorrow. I was like this oh, is great. amazing. Yeah. That's so awesome. Cool. Um, how how has your life been impacted by AGT and and? You know, uh, really great, thing. really positive. Uh, it. I'm so happy how it unfolded mm -hmm. for me. Um, first and foremost, I'm glad I didn't flash or expose anything mm -hmm. on my journey because every taping is 20 cameras and I don't have final cut. Yeah. I'm not in the editing room, so I can't tell them how to put it together. And I was, I feel very lucky that I was really present at camera rehearsals and, uh, I got, I asked them for video playback from camera rehearsals before the live tapings mm -hmm. or the live broadcast so I could watch and make tweaks 
because they're going to stick once they lock that ca those that camera sequence. That's how they're going to shoot it. They're going to do a close up at this point. They're going to pull back at this point, and they're real. They're super pros. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've never seen such a professional production. That's a it's a monster. It's a beast. You, they got twenty cameras shooting different material at any given moment, mm -hmm. and you know, it's impressive and intimidating. And so. After every live taping, I ran right back to the hotel and went right on YouTube and watched immediately what had just aired to make sure this didn't tweak or that didn't. So mm -hmm. first and foremost, to my magician family, brothers and sisters, I'm glad I did not fuck up because <laughs> uh, it's very easy to do on yeah. live TV. Um, I felt like uh, I was really lucky how they chose to frame me because... Um, Steinmeier sat down with me and had lunch before I dove into the whole process. He had worked with a handful of acts in the past, and he gave me the best advice. He said, never, ever forget, it's 10% talent show and 90% reality show, and never forget that. That's the priority in their mind. That is how the show is framed. That is how it is broadcast. The, the fact that you have an act is a given, and the majority is the story and the drama and so I was prepared for the hours of interviews you know and so I kind of I worked out somewhat of a stump speech for each kind of round mm -hmm. there's just the information I wanted to hit again and again and again and again so I'm not I don't want to accidentally make a what I think is a funny joke about that guy's a douchebag and then yeah. they edit it in a way that <clears throat> makes me look like I'm calling someone a douchebag yeah right I mean they have it really became clear to me how much power they have about every moment. Uh, my first audition, I went out on stage. Mel B said, so you have kids? And I'm like, yeah, I have two very young boys. Uh, our youngest just took his first step. And, the, uh, and she goes, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah, he admitted he is powerless over drugs and alcohol. And she's like, what? And I'm like, it's a recovery joke. And the audience laughed and, you know, Howard thought it was hilarious. And okay, well, Show us what you got. <laughs> Fine. What aired my first appearance on the show? Mel B. So you have uh, you have some you have some kids. Yeah, I have two very young boys. Our youngest just took his first step. Cut to the audience. Oh. Cut back to Mel. Well, show us what you got. So they they spun it. Yeah. And they spun it in a positive way. Yeah. They could have not. They could have not. Yeah. And. I, I feel like I really lucked out that backstage before taping that first audition at the Dolby, I f they asked me if I could FaceTime my family before going on. Mm -hmm. And my kids happened to be home. They happened to be adorable. And our interaction happened to be just timing and perfect. And they were both kind of popping in and out of the screen. And they're so cute. And... There was a nice little tag joke that kind of happened organically. That was the moment the producer said, we have a story for this guy. Yeah. Dad. And they made me a hero. Yeah. That was, that was responsible probably for me making it through to the voting rounds. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, I have friends who have gone on and had a killer first audition and then something was went wrong or even kind of was sabotaged in the second round. And all they air is the second round segment, editing out all of the jokes that did work. Mm -hmm. I'm not kidding. 
So it just looks like this guy is desperate. And he's not. He's a pro. Yeah. He's amazing. He's hilarious. You know, he's a star in our world. And, you know, so I had no illusions about what I might be getting myself into. Yeah. And I just felt like I got real lucky. And then once I kind of, once they painted that story and I started getting solid material up on stage, um, that was great. Here was another real positive thing about it. It was like a crash course in scripting and writing magic for TV because they wanted 90 seconds. They wanted every segment to be 90 seconds. I got these seven-minute routines. Yeah. So I'm whittling down. I did card to pocket, and I'm whittling down card to pocket from seven-minute routine with solid jokes that are tried and true that work every time, right? A-list material for me, uh, and I'm whittling it down, and I've got a timer. Uh, I'm using the timer, and I'm marking down three minutes and nine seconds, three minutes and one second, two minutes and 57 seconds, two minutes and 45 seconds. And I, I have this, I still have this piece of paper from just, and the script, I'm cutting words, and I'm just tweaking and upping the pace and yeah. just economy, economy. And I was like, damn, this is just like, Boom, 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 boom. And I got no time but to also make it be natural and have my cadence and any kind of organic voice, you know. And when I watched it, it looked about right. It looked about the right pace. TV is fast. Yeah. TV requires, you know, there's not a lot of time to take a breath and wait in that medium. Yeah. And that was that was a huge lesson, you know. It's like learning to really tighten it, hone it. If it doesn't, if it's extra, no fat, zero fat, lean and mean. Yep. Yeah. There was, uh, as far as exposure, here's a story. The finals, I'm doing a, I'm doing it. You saw that cut and restore rope today. Yeah. Um, that trick has a bad angle. And uh, we did the camera rehearsal. And I'm not saying they were setting me up, but they do... I had heard stories of like sort of them put, creating moments of drama for texture. Mm-hmm. They got to make a show. Yeah. They got to make a show that has highs and lows and victory and defeat, you know. And um, so at the te- at the camera rehearsal, there's a camera shooting me right here, and it couldn't be worse for what I know the angle is mm-hmm. on this bit. I mean, it couldn't be worse. And I asked my producer, point blank, I'm like, I'm worried about this camera. I don't think it's right. And she's like, it's fine. Okay. Jack, Handsome Jack was helping me. He was out in New York helping me. And he was videotaping. They, they broadcast on the live big screens for the live audience what they're airing live at home. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that, that means it's also the camera coverage footage. Yeah. So he's using my phone to cover that footage. Okay. And filming it. I didn't know he was doing it, but he just he did it on his own with my phone. And I asked um, to send me the camera rehearsal. And I get an email back that uh, it's not working today for something. We have a glitch in the we have a glitch in the in the feed. The Vimeo's not working. You know, That's something something's not happening. Oh, right, really, NBC. Um, but anyway, so I'm not getting the camera coverage for the first time yeah. of these live rounds, and it's the last round. But Jack has this, you know, on my phone the video, and I watch it, and my God, it's it's exposure. Mm-hmm. It's exposure. So that night, when I get to the theater, 
and they've already loaded in the whole audience. Radio City Music Hall, 6,000 people are packed in their seats. And this man was there. Handsome was, Jack just walked in the door. I was there for the whole thing. Uh, what are we talking about? I'm talking about changing my camera angle on the rope restoration. Um, so the audience is loaded in, and I, I go to my producer and I say, I'm going to be, I'm not going to stand, I'm not going to be standing in the position we set for that final bit. She's like, well, you have to, or you'll be off camera. And I'm like, well, then I'll be off camera. Like, I really cared more mm-hmm. about defending the secret than I did about how I looked, because I'd look horrible, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and finally, she's like, okay, fine. She gets on the walkie, and I go out in front of the whole audience, and I, I go through, I mime through the actions, and I show her where I'm going to be standing. And we reset the cameras, and I didn't, I didn't flash, you know? Big triumph. <laughs> I, th- they 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 booted me that round. You know, that was the one that you know. Apparently, I uh, disappointed them, mm. but I didn't disappoint me. Yeah, a little bit. We worked so hard, man. This guy, a handsome Jack, uh, who's sitting here now. Uh, we were working on this thing because every round I was doing material that I had I knew for, backward and forward, like the back of my hand. And for that final round, I had this um, this big idea mm-hmm. that I would do this three rope routine, this great three rope routine. Uh, Timothy Wink, um, I have I do a variation on something he put out. It's a great. It's been my opener for years. Surefire trick, really great. Some nice visuals, and it uses three ropes. And what the big the big idea was, I was going to do the three rope trick, and I was using these dancers, and I would ring in a fourth rope for this added beat of a cut and restore moment. Mm-hmm. So I'd do my rope, three rope trick, and then uh, she, the dancer would take two of the ropes off, and i take one of those three ropes that I've just been handling freely and do something just totally impossible, that cut and restore, you know? Mm-hmm. And ringing it in was the hardest thing in the world to make it look natural and we were backstage up until the very last minute and I was hitting it less than 50% of the time <laughs> I would uh, just going through the move of this this action that was required to naturally ring it in and uh, make it look natural and half the time I'd hit it and and be set and half the time way off not right not ready to go and then it's like you're on live tv (laughs) and i hit it uh out there when it counted in the right angle (laughs) from the right position have good shows jack thanks you too well so you were a precocious kid how did that start when did you get into magic when did you start being a show person you know, uh, my mom was 16. I was premature, so I had a birth defect when I was born. So I was—I kind of got a lot of attention from the immediate. She had a lot of sisters, mm-hmm. and so I was—and I was the first out of all the sisters. She was the first to have a kid. Mm-hmm. All of them have since had multiple children. I have a plethora of cousins, but not until I was six. So I was the only baby in this gaggle of women, and we lived with my grandmother on and off mm-hmm. over those preliminary years. So uh, always kind of a focus of attention and always always sort of given the story that there was something special because I'd survived. I was born, my abdominal wall wasn't fully formed, mm-hmm. and I had a hole in my heart, 
at birth. So they had to pull like my skin together from both sides and sew it up the center. So I have a big scar here and I don't have a belly button because uh, there's scar tissue that covers what, I mean, belly button's just a scar from yeah. your umbilical cord, but I have bigger scar tissue that covers what would it be that scar. Um, so, you know, always kind of a story being spun about, you know, being different, special. Uh, uh, and I always, I always felt like kind of blessed, you know, like I, 50-50, I could have died at birth. So everything else is a bonus, mm-hmm. you know, so why not do what you want to do? And magic came about, there was a magic kit in my friend's game closet. My, my buddy Don Belka had a game closet and his brother had been gifted a magic kit that he didn't, never touched. It was called The 100 Greatest Tricks of the Last 50 Years. And the booklet was written by uh, um, Leo Benke, who's a castle guy. And the bottom of the box was had black and white photos and was a editorial piece about the magic castle where we're sitting right now. Okay, and as a ten-year-old, I mean that place might as well it probably didn't exist anymore. Or you know, it was in a far-off land. You know, I'm in Minnesota. What's this place? Yeah, so crazy the seeds <laughs> that are planted. Uh, but there was a penny to dime gaff in that set that when I did it, it was easy to do and it's a stunning effect. And so when I did it for a handful of grown-ups, I, I had a skill, you know, mm-hmm. and that just that was it, you know. Um, I went to a YMCA camp, and this kid John Hess uh, was an, had, was really into magic as a hobby more than I. He had a little ammo kit filled with semi-professional props. He had a 20th century silk and a brainwave deck, and like, what's this? And he told me about Eagle Magic Store, which was down on Portland Avenue in downtown Minneapolis. Larry Kalo, the propri- proprietor, and uh, I got off that bus from YMCA camp, <laughs> got into the car with my mom, and said take me there and we went right there from the bus she loaned me 75 cents and i bought an easy magic cups and balls that was my first trick from a magic supply house and yeah it was just i was in john has told me about uh two years kind of it was like a actually that year because 10 was the magic kit and about 11 and a half i met john eagle magic and then at 12 john has said, hey, I'm going to go to Magic Camp. I heard of this Magic Camp in New York. You want to go? And I talked my mom into raiding some, you know, I had a modest inheritance for college. And she's, she was an idiot. I mean, what? She was, she was in her early 20s. <laughs> so I went to Tannen's Magic Camp. And as a 12-year-old, uh, did one summer there and never was able to go back as a camper because uh, it was cost prohibitive. And an amazing thing happened that year. My mom, God bless her, she booked my flight incorrect. So I was stuck in New York an extra day. Like her 12-year-old kid, you know? She's not looking at the, what is she doing? Uh, but uh, Bob Elliott was the camp director, and Bob Elliott was a great close-up New York guy and huge fan of magic. And uh, I, cried, I he took me in. I stayed at his house which was better than camp. You know, he showed me some of his pet routines and gave me a stack of English pennies and just so generous. He, he died a few years back and it was a real, a real loss. But uh, yeah, that's kind of, it was at magic camp that the real light bulb went off 
Richard Sanders was my counselor, and he showed me everything I had done was doing up until that point was Gaffis, store-bought prop. Um, you know, I wasn't really reading books necessarily yet, and uh, Richard showed me a, a four-coin, four-card matrix, just real basic, but pure sleight of hand. And it looked like special effects to my 12-year-old brain. And that was the most, like, that's possible with just stuff uh, I'm in, you know. And so that's how I, that's how I, the really, it kind of a constellation of events, too. You know, like when I got that first kit, uh, that later that year I had to have an open heart surgery to repair that birth defect. So I was out of school. And I think a lot of kids, young guys especially, get a magic kit or a couple tricks at an early age. And it's hard. Yeah. You know, you got to do you, get, you got to do three things at once. You got to perform, you got to do the secret move, and you got to do the actions that are ostensibly taking place, right? Mm -hmm. eh, fuck that. I'm going to go rollerblade or I don't know, you know. But I was, I had this downtime so I could kind of it allowed me to get kind of a, a couple of things under my belt that, and, and appreciate that process, mm -hmm. that slow learning that is magic, you know? And uh, yeah, then I printed business cards and <laughs> was in it to win it. What about stand-up? How'd you get into that? Well, I've always had, I've always been a huge fan of stand-up. And this goes back to when I'm like 14, 15 years old, there was a club in downtown Minneapolis uh, called the Rib Tickler. A man named David Woods opened a club called the Rib Tickler, and he he had called Mike Lacey, and he's like, "Hey, Mike Lacey. Mike Lacey owns the Comedy and Magic Club in Hermosa Beach." And he said, "Mike, I want to open your club in Minneapolis. Not a conflict of interest because it's two thousand miles away, three thousand miles away, or whatever." Um, Mike's like, "Fine." So David Wood literally modeled the Rib Tickler uh, in Minneapolis on the Comedy and Magic Club built the same size stage, small thrust, mm -hmm. with a similar sort of uh, proscenium of lights, and he had vintage magic posters uh, around decorating, and uh, every week he booked a headline magician and a headline comic, and I got my folks as often as I could to sneak me in, and I... I was able to catch Kozak and Christopher Hart and Scott Servine and John Carney performing with Jake Johansson and, you know, like headline comics. So always in the back, of, I was there for the magic, but in the back of my mind, I was getting great stand-up yeah. and seeing them work together side by side. So I think that's always been a, and I've always had levity ever since I was, you know, even in the intensive care unit recovering from heart surgery and my mother brought me a, a G.I. Joe kid. I was really into the G.I. Joe action figures at the time. And uh, I saw how freaked she, she was scared, you know, like her, her son's chopped open. Yeah. And I ran the little guy across my chest with all the blood and the tape and the shit. And I'm like, it's a battlefield. <laughs> Made her laugh. Yeah. You know, always, always humor yeah. as a way to deflect or heal. And so... So those seeds were in there, and I was, and again, I always just had kind of a goofy sense of humor, making people laugh, um, and always thinking, you know, I'd like to write some stand-up, but you know, but but magic always sort of taking the the front place. Mm -hmm. And then uh, HBO used to have a festival in Aspen, the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival, and I was invited to come out and do some of my work, 
on one of their variety stages. It was an amazing lineup. Jimmy Pardo hosted the show. Wow. Fred Armisen was doing some of his character work, and wow. uh, I was doing. Uh, I was pulling a card out of my ass, <laughs> uh, and it was there that I saw just this saturation of amazing stand-up. Chappelle did an epic set, and wow. Kyle Dunnigan, who I think is hilarious, uh, was just killing me. And uh, that was that was the catalyst where I came back from that, and I started. I, I consciously wrote a, some straight stand-up material mm -hmm. and wove it into my act. And I remember the first night I did straight stand-up. It was in the middle of a longer set of magic. I had written a joke, and I was going to do the joke. And I finished a trick, and I was as nervous as you are trying a new trick. Yeah. And I say the premise of the joke, and then the punch, and the audience laughs. Yeah. They laugh real, real good. And I freaked out and <laughs> grabbed a deck of cards and went right into the next routine. Like, oh, fuck, uh, more magic, more magic. <laughs> I had no idea what to do with it. Yeah. Um, That's and uh, full circle, and again, talking about those seeds that are planted, that club where I, where I, did, where I did that was called Acme at the time. But its previous name was the Rib Tickler. Oh wow! So you know, like, but I wasn't conscious of that in that moment. You yeah. know, the Rib Tickler had closed and uh, turned into a straight stand-up club, and it's still there. It's the club I was at over Easter, working out the nest of boxes. Oh wow! Yeah, man, it's great. It's 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 a really great club. There's something magic about the space. It's in a basement, very low ceilings. Mm -hmm. It's just conducive. It's like, it's almost like working out material here. You can't get a litmus on how good something's working in this space because never has an audience been more ready for magic than at yes. the Magic Castle. Yeah. You know, you got to go try it in a real environment to see if it's really actually good. And Acme's kind of that way with comedy where it's just like there's something about the room where it's just everything's fucking funny and it's hard to... Everything's close. Everyone's a little uncomfortable. Like, yeah. And it's yeah. dark and... And there's something about this, it's almost like a black art situation, same as Comedy Magic Club. They have this string of bright lights that are exposed bulbs. The Acme has exposed bulbs. At the Comedy Magic, it's like these sort of colorful Wurlitzer tubes of light. Mm -hmm. But it's light that is directed at the audience while you're watching the performer. And it starts to create a halo effect. I don't know if you've ever meditated or looked meditated on a candle flame. But after a while, after a few moments of sort of just deeply contemplating and breathing a candle flame, everything around the candle flame starts to turn to darkness. Oh, uh, yes, I've and done that. And just the flame is like what's... And that's what happens for the performer on stage at Acme. Everything kind of starts to fade out and you're just, because of that ring of light. That yeah. It's really primo, you know. It's amazing how a space... Uh, when I'm doing one-nighters all over the place, Half of my job is rearranging the space so it's conducive for focus, you know? The high ceilings suck. Have you ever gotten to a venue where the tra there's track lighting on the other side of the room and the stage you're on isn't lit? Or, I mean, it's crazy how people don't even think common sense about people are going to be watching this person for an hour. Let's make it difficult. Let's put it. Let's put them against a window with a street scene behind them, you know, with traffic or crazy shit. Yeah. But when you're in when you're in that an ideal architecture for focus, when an, a space that is really designed for for the medium, that's pretty great. Yeah. Like a sports venue, you know.
the sports arenas are designed for the sport. Yeah. You know, good theaters are designed for that game. Who are some of your favorite comedians? Favorite comedian, Louis C.K., uh, Stephen Wright, Harry Anderson, and I'll count him as a magician and a comedian. Uh, Jake Johansson, mm-hmm. I think, is... I mean, this guy, he's been on, he was on Letterman over 40 times, I think, and just always funny, always interesting, always innovative. Uh, who are you, Do you have favorites? Favorite comedians? Yeah. Uh, Seinfeld is one of my favorites. I don't, I don't enjoy his stand-up as much as I used to, but I love the person and I fucking love the show. Yeah, and so it, he just holds like a special place in my heart. But comedians, um, Bo Burnham, I think is uh, phenomenal. Louis, of course. Uh, my favorite comedian is Pete Holmes. Okay. Because um, I like how silly I have to he watch is. more Pete Holmes. I like Pete a lot. Yeah. I like his first special better than his second special. Okay. Uh, I I'll just keep like that the in flavor mind. of it a little better. But the, his yeah his new specials on HBO. It's called Faces and Sounds. Uh, but I just, I really love his stand-up. I think he's silly and fun and goofy. Um, but I I love stand-up, and I'm, I'm friends with a lot of magicians who really enjoy stand-up. And we, we've been talking about, like, what magicians can learn from stand-up and how magicians who have very clear favorite comedians, how that reflects in their magic. And just, yeah. You know, I'm just thinking about that kind of stuff, and so I've just wanted to put it to you. And sure, if there's anything, if Add, adding to the list too, uh, Gary Shandling, Joe Rogan, oh, Gary Shandling, fuck, is yeah, it? yeah, come on, uh, Bill Burr, mm-hmm. great, phenomenal. yeah, probably one of the best working now. Oh, 100. percent Yeah, I saw a killer night with uh, it was two comics. It was Bill Burr presents Nate Bargatze. Oh, fuck. Now... Nate is so funny. Nate is so freaking funny. I just worked with him at Comedy and Magic last month, Mm -hmm. and I was so happy when I saw that we were on the same lineup together. It was just awesome. And his dad is Steve Steve Bargatze, who's a great comedy magician, right? And... uh, But Nate's clean. Yeah. Nate, squeaky clean. Not... Nary a swear word, you know? And hilarious. And so, Bill Burr, not clean. No. Dirty, dirty. Very. Right? <laughs> so Bill comes out and does a headline set, 40, 50 minutes. And now he says, and now I want to introduce a guy I'm a huge fan of. I think you're going to love him too, Nate Bargatze. Nate comes out and does 50 minutes all clean and destroys. Yeah. And then Bill came out and did another 50 minutes <laughs> uh, and killed us even harder. Uh, but that was epic. Yeah. You, uh, where we saw Improvised Shakespeare. Did Largo. you ever go see the comedy shows there? Yeah. It's yeah, the yeah. best. It's such a great room. Yeah. 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 I've seen Pete there several times. Yeah. He's got a real hit show going on there. Yeah. 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 His living at Largo there is amazing. Um, let's see. Uh, Moshe Kasher I saw at yeah. uh, at Largo on one of Pete's shows. I saw Mulaney. Mulaney dropped down on one of his shows. Mulaney, I think, is so... He's like a real stand-up comedian. Like he go, he gets on stage. John Mulaney, do you know? Yeah. Him? Okay. Yeah. He gets on stage and it's like immediately into the stand-up. There's no. He's not playing around. Like he's a fucking machine. Sure. Of hilarity. Yeah. Uh, and like I'm I'm generally drawn to uh, like more. I don't know. Mulaney's so like he seems so polished and so shiny and so like like he is stand-up comedy. Whereas like. Generally, more what I'm drawn to is people that are like 
kind of in it, maybe writing from stage a little more and sure, a little alternative. Yeah, I'm yeah the alt the whole thing, but uh, yeah, Mulaney's just like pew, pew, pew. I don't know. He's so good though. He's so funny. Man, it's intimidating when you see good stuff. Yeah, because it just seems impossible. Do you feel like a phony? Say what? Do you feel like a phony? A phony? Yeah. In what way? I, I don't, I'm not calling you a phony. <laughs> uh, I, there's just a, um, a psychological thing called imposter syndrome, ah. which is where what you're doing, uh, you feel like you are not the person to be doing it necessary. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no. Cool. No, no, no. I, and I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, no, what a, what a horrible thing to feel. <laughs> I feel it all the time. Yeah. Oh, oh, Elliot, don't. You're not a phony. You're not a phony. A lot of people that I talk to, a lot of creative people that I talk to uh, have that feeling. They're like, I don't know. I, I feel like there was a, was a time, yeah. you know, at an earlier age, and you're, you're a younger man than I am. I, I do, I feel like, you know, Amar used to talk about, he was a guy who would tour through Minneapolis and was hugely influential on me as he was on many people in the late 80s. He was just a powerhouse teaching all the time and mm-hmm. everywhere, ubiquitous. Um, and also, I was really into toppeting. Like, <laughs> I'm not joking, man. Did you have like a, an eight size too big double-breasted coat that you wore? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it was in the late 80s. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but, right, he, he talked about learning magic mm-hmm. and and striving towards a state he called conscious competence mm-hmm. you know at first you're incompetent uh i don't whatever the stages are yeah. you get to a place where you're competent and you're conscious of it mm-hmm. like you you've done it enough and you know it well enough that you are you have conscious competence yeah and i feel like i passed a threshold at at some point where i just and i I was like, hey, wow, I'm I'm in a state of conscious competence. Like, I've done enough to know that I'm going to land on my feet even if shit goes wrong. Today, yeah. I made a girl cry, and we found a way out of it. Yeah. You know? And we made her a star for that moment, and, and I was no longer, and I was a hero. <laughs> you know? And I didn't know how I was going to get there with her. Yeah. But, you know, heading backstage, I wasn't freaking out. I wasn't nervous. I was just like, I got to find a way. You know, like, I was kind of just in it. And, like, we got to find a way to spin this and and go back out and see if we can get there. Yeah. And I feel like that comes from conscious competence. Dude, it's such a nice space to be in. Because mm-hmm. you don't, I mean, you don't need to stress about being a phony. Yeah. It's that idea that you're going to be discovered or or figured out or, un- or unmasked mm-hmm. is torture yeah 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 because you know <laughs> i know <laughs> well and let me just say man like you're here yeah we're here yeah and uh you deserve to be here <laughs> thank you you're welcome i appreciate it you got it <laughs> Uh, I know that I just jumped into that real fast, so I want to go back to the comedy thing, but uh, are you influenced by some of your favorite comedians? Do you consciously think about that? Because it it does sort of influence you as a person. Things that you love Mm -hmm. get inside of you. Like, is that part of... Do you draw inspiration from that? Not directly, like copying. I'll tell you, early on, 
like right out of the gate mm -hmm. watching acts at the rib tickler as a 14 15 16 year old emerging artist yeah uh jake johansson to go back to jake jake had a persona at the time that was heightened from where he is now uh he, he looked kind of like buddy holly with glasses and he had a poofy hair and he wore a, a real mod suit and his his persona was you know in the 80s a com comic voices were a little more character you know like stephen wright um bobcat right these yeah. yeah these characters voices and care you know yeah. emo there was these characters mm -hmm. that were real popular and these weirdos these personas these entities and jake had a real strong persona at the time and it's he had a a real kind of cadence and he would you know set up a thing he was like uh i uh cut myself shaving and you know first thing i thought got to clean it so i grabbed the rubbing alcohol and the audience inevitably goes, oh. And then he responds, well, I wish you were there to tell me. <laughs> you know, but there was this staccato kind of yeah. blurt. I totally did that Yeah. for like two years, 15, 16 years old in my magic. I'd be like, pick a card, <laughs> like <laughs> trying to be Jake. Yeah. Um, just to, to, to be in that armor yeah. of someone else's yes. voice that I yeah. knew worked so I could kind of bang around inside it and feel it and get those laughs. Um, you have to try on your influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a crazy experience, which was the the house MC at the Rib Tickler when I was going 14, 15, 16 years old was a great magician named Bill Arnold, Minneapolis, my hero, you know, and he was the house MC. So every time I would go see the shows, he was be doing his act. He had this super tight act with a paper tear and gags and, uh, you know, just really funny. And uh, he wrote, co-wrote a show with two other guys called Triple Espresso. And in the show, he did his act. Mm -hmm. The show was a huge success, ran for eight years in San Diego. Wow. I went down and performed in it for over two years when I first moved to California. And they put me up and I would drive up to LA for auditions and drive back down for to do the shows, long run, eight shows a week. And in the act, one of the sections of the show was his act. So I had to learn his act mm -hmm. and do his act. So it was like I was getting paid to plagiarize my hero yeah. and see it, feel it work like to wear someone else's voice yeah and feel how that where it was like it was a master class in uh you know understanding what i had loved so much as a as a younger artist that's amazing it was really nobody cool. gets to do that that's uh, yeah. super cool without getting bitched out or yeah. ostracized you know i was totally plagiarizing and i was supposed to yeah you know that's amazing yeah it was really cool that's really cool it was really cool um now, I, I have this happen sometimes where, you know, I don't write stand-up fast enough. You know, I'm, again, talking about discipline and the pace of output. Uh, and sometimes I will watch comics I admire, and they'll go into a premise that's waiting in a notebook. Like, I've written a note, like, ah, oh, cell phones, you know? Mm -hmm. And they'll do cell phone stuff, and I'm like, ah! Oh, I don't even want to hear it, la, 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 because I don't want to... I definitely don't want to accidentally do the same bits. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, 
like I, for years I didn't watch Darren Brown because I didn't want to be in because such strong ideas on the presentation of magic and I just mm. didn't want to be I didn't want that flavoring my my shit you know yeah. out of respect <laughs> um, but I get I get inspired by the comics I love by how courageous they are and how confident they are you know Joe Rogan just trusts his opinion yeah and so he just talks and I wish I had I look forward to a day not a not too distant in the future day when I'm having more bold confidence with my jokes I'm very happy with this week in the parlor in that I came up with three maybe new bits to the week quick ones you know an introduction for one of the acts and a callback for uh you know to one of the acts you know stuff that happened in there stuff that's just written just for this room Mm -hmm. just for this week but they're getting strong laughs and that's encouraging um joe said something that i i could i could stand to embrace more uh which was comedy to him is really figuring out, like really figuring out how you see the world and then communicating it in a way so the audience gets it the way you see it. Mm-hmm. Like that to me was like, whoa, yes. And then you hope it's funny. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I'm pretty amazed at how, how often just speaking the truth leads to humor in a group mm-hmm. you know it doesn't even have to be the most hilarious thing initially just honesty makes us kind of wakes us up and makes us giggle a little of maybe maybe it's out of discomfort well, it's or, like what you said earlier it's freedom that's what honesty is and authenticity it's pure freedom yeah 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 i think i i i, I kind of i'm hobbled a little at times because of my training as a magician. Yeah. And our training as a magician is you go in a closet and you perfect that shit yeah. before you show it to anyone. And I don't think that's totally the way it is with maybe comedy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, jokes do get written and perfected, but there is also sort of a blurt hanging with your dick in your hand for a little bit. You know, I mean, I've seen. I've been blessed to see some of my favorite comics totally floundering mm-hmm. as they work shit out in these weird offshoot venues. You know, I mean, I remember the old Largo before it was at the Coronet was this amazing venue on Fairfax, tight little room, and I, you know, Zach Galifianakis walking out into the audience doing the worst crowd work you've ever seen. <laughs> and one night, you know, he picks up the candle off my table and clearly just a moment and he drinks the wax. Like he just and it wasn't funny and it was and he just that was a horrible idea. And but he wasn't working. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was just but any he was just I'm just gonna he was just see. Doing, yeah. I'm just going to follow this and kind of see. And, I mean, again, okay, Zach, there's another one who's just, I think Zach is amazing. Yeah. He is so fucking hilarious. He's one of, I now that you mentioned that, he's one of the first stand-up specials that I watched and was like, holy fuck, this is amazing. Live with the Purple Onion. Yep. I love that special. And his his little character bits. Uh, with his bro- As his brother? 
No, the ones where he does. Uh, my favorite one is um, the condescending illiterate, <laughs> where, where he borrows somebody's glasses from the audience. He goes, "Okay, this is condescending illiterate," and he takes the glasses off and he goes. I told you, I can't. <laughs> I can't even fucking do it. <laughs> I told you, I can't read. <laughs> I just thought that was so fucking hilarious. Ah, uh, yeah, Zach's amazing. And free. <laughs> yeah. Free. There's no fear, or at least it doesn't seem like there's any fear. It really? Yeah. Yeah. One of my one of my newer friends uh, that I made since I've moved up to L.A. is a stand-up. He's been doing it for about six years, and he's still hitting open mics. He works at the comedy store, so he's hanging out with names and talking to them about shit that's happening in his life and working on bits and stuff. But he's hitting open mics, you know, four or five times a week, just continuously trying new material. And like, I don't know. I want to start. I want to start doing more stand-up stuff, and I want to start going to open mics as a magician. Yeah, because, it's great. You're going to love it. Yeah, because, like, I don't know. I just always assumed, because of, like, what you were saying, we have to go in a closet and practice something until it's perfect, that you couldn't do that. And I've been kind of awakening to the idea that, yeah, fuck it. You just yeah. go and do it, you know? Yeah. I struggle with that. This goes back to the thing I said at the, about the castle earlier, is I struggle with the idea that, like, I have to be an ambassador for good magic. But also, I have to work on my own new shit. It's like what Blaine was saying to you. It's like, I've got to deliver my A game, but I also have to work as an artist and grow. And sure. The uh, the addendum. What I what I hadn't said about what Blaine was talking about. What he followed up with mm-hmm. was uh, he was basically saying, use these venues, use these road gigs to fall flat on your face, trying new shit all the time. And the addendum is because once you break. Once you become a national focus, mm-hmm. you can't do that anymore. Yeah, every time has to be knocking it out of the park. Mm-hmm. There's no longer the luxury to fail, as he has discovered yeah. at times. Yeah, you know, and that was just killer advice, and also very encouraging. You know, like he said, it was he, it, it, there was such an assumption that you're gonna break. It yeah, you, you know, shoot. it was really nice. You know. But I think also that's his mindset. I've known that guy since we were 18 as yeah. well. And before anything, you know, he's like, I'm going to be famous. And I'm like, I'm from Minnesota. Like, whatever. <laughs> and fucking A. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to catch him in uh, San Antonio. Oh, great. Yeah. Heard his show is very good. Yeah. Well, I was with him uh, f- on the show for a couple dates in Singapore and Manila mm-hmm. about two years ago. He did a test run in the Middle East and Asia. Wow. I didn't and it was phenomenal. Yeah, we played the uh, arena in Manila where Ali beat Frazier, the thriller oh, wow. in Manila. Yeah. <laughs> I did my rope trick, you know, for <laughs> thousands of people in a sold-out arena. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And they loved it. They loved him, his persona on stage. It was great. First thing he said when I walked through uh, his hotel room when I arrived in Singapore was, uh, why didn't you ever tell me? I'm like, well, tell you what how great it is working for a big crowd. Like, he he hadn't really done show shows. Yeah, yeah. He was the close-up guy, you know, and one-off site-specific stuff. And yeah. through, the, through, through that process of touring and starting to do a show for a large group, he was, he was learning jokes and callbacks and, and the power of sort of a scripted repetition. And 
It was really cool to see. That's awesome. Yeah, he was great on stage. I'm excited. That's what I've heard from people that have seen the show. I didn't get to see it uh, when he was out here. I'm sure he's going to come back and hit L.A. at the end, probably. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's got the dates on the calendar, and, you know, Riverside, San Diego were the the two that were close. I was mm-hmm. on the road, so I was bummed. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I've heard from people, like, that David has great stage presence. And oh. He's very charming on yeah. stage in front of – I think that's so cool. Also that he's, like, continuously pushing – Garrett Thomas said something to me that I kind of blew my mind. I'd never thought about it like this, but he's like, when you're David Blaine, the story is I met David Blaine. So anything that you have to do has to be better than being in the room with David Blaine. He's like, that's why everything that he does pushes himself farther and harder is because he's, it's a self-completing circle. Yeah. It's like every time he does something that adds to the myth of David Blaine. Yeah. So he has to top that and top that, top that. I know it. It actually makes me nervous. <laughs> I I did. I did. It was jet lag, but I I broke down alone in my little hotel room in Singapore when I got there, because I knew I was I was there to do a, a section of Variety, kind of host this Variety segment while he prepared for his final stunt, and then narrate the final stunt, which mm-hmm. is holding his breath. And you know, I was like, did I fly halfway around the world to watch my friend die? Like, he's always pushing to the edge of his own mortality. Mm-hmm. And we are just flesh and blood, you know? And I just, man, he's he's hell-bent on going out big, it seems to me. And that, uh, that makes me sad a little bit. It does. Yeah. You know? Because he is so charismatic and such a unique individual and a parent. And... Uh, but this is a guy. He's had a vision from day one. Yeah. It's wild. You look at the first piece of press. I think it's the first piece of press he ever got. It was in Vanity Fair, and it was just a small chunk in faces and places, like Manhattan's social scene. And he was, for a while, he was going to go by the name Blue Glass. He had an idea, I'm going to be Blue Glass. He'd kill me for saying it probably but he had these sunglasses these sunglasses that were blue glass blue lens sunglasses and he was on point with with the idea which is branding you know and I understand branding and I I'm grappling with how to get traction in in the zeitgeist right Um, but uh, the the picture was him with the blue glasses on and it was David Blaine something along the lines of uh aspires to be a combination between Evil Knievel and Harry Houdini. So even from day one, the endurance and the daredevil element was a part of his vision, mm-hmm. you know? I think, I think he's, he nailed it so hard with Real or Magic. Finally, he just put his finger right on, if the public has a problem with David Blaine, it's that. Yeah, because he's doing real stunts and he's doing tricks. Yeah, and what we're so dumb and sing, tunnel visioned. Yeah, we can't grasp a complex, multifaceted thought. Mm-hmm. So, are you a magician or are you not? You know, it's just. But in that special, he threw it all out the window and and called it for what it is. Yeah, you decide. Great. Super great. Uh, yeah. Well. We've been going for two and a half hours. Wow. Yeah. Lots of words. Many words. All the words. 
Uh, there's just a couple final questions. Do you feel good? I feel great. Yeah. Elliot, thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so it's interesting. You know, it's very helpful to just have a conversation about how we think and what we are up to. Yeah. To help clarify in our own mind what we think and what we are up to. It's very helpful to have this conversation. I head next week out to Tannen's Magic Camp, mm-hmm. where I now go every year when I can as a counselor. And I always think to myself, what do I wish I had learned when I was a 12-year-old visiting Magic Camp? Yeah. What did I need to hear? What could have shaved some effort, time, failure off my learning curve if I had known then? Yeah. And so this is helping me prepare a little bit for some of that. Well, what are some of those things? Um, Really get up, perform all the time. Yeah. Every time as much as you can that's number one flight time nothing replaces it nothing can prepare you more for the future than just doing it a lot i see a lot of people who in any endeavor they have this illusion that they're going to get their ducks in a row before they really make the big push they're really going to get ready we're never ready we're ready now we're as ready as we're ever going to be, and the only way we're going to get really ready is by full-on doing it, you know? So that's probably the number one thing I'll, I'll try to impart. And save 10% of everything you ever make. <laughs> Another good one. Because you don't, look, if you're a self-employed performing artist, you don't want to not have savings. <laughs> <laughs> How else are you going to buy a Louis Vuitton? I'm telling you. I'm telling you. That's great. Uh, so what's your favorite book? Not magic book. What's your favorite piece of literature? Okay. Right off the bat, uh, I'd have to say uh, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. I just love that book. Great book. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I love Is there Kurt another Vonnegut. one you said right off the bat? Like, No, just oh, okay. that's sort of my... That's also my self-professed like favorite book. Like uh-huh. if you were to, I know that's my favorite book. You know, why? Uh, I just it really blew my mind when I first read it. And Kurt Vonnegut in general was my favorite author for a very long time. Uh, I just think his his kind of dark yet hopeful view of the human condition is enlightened. <laughs> uh favorite way to relax favorite way to relax okay yeah. man when i when we when we buy a house i'm gonna have you and me a, a, yep me and you elliot okay uh no when my family we're, we're still renting um and we have this shallow fucking tub and oh. i am gonna have mm. a deep tub that has the ability to block that drain that drains when the water goes above the you know the the, the yep. drain line. Yep. Uh, I love a hot bath. I I love a hot bath. That is my favorite my favorite way to relax. That's great. Favorite so, child. Favorite what? Child. Child. <laughs> my favorite child. Your favorite child. Um, What's well, not one of mine. Good. Uh, great. Next <laughs> next question. <laughs> uh, favorite magic book. Favorite magic book. Yeah. Nelms. Probably, Great. showmanship for magicians. Um, is it magic and showmanship? Yeah, magic and showmanship. If 
by handing notes. It's it's got a kind of heightened language, and some of the the routines aren't really great for a contemporary sort of mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, But the lessons are so spot on. Um, I'm a big fan of that book. Cool. Yeah. Um, And and Erdnase. I mean. I mean that, that old thing. That's just like <laughs> dense with deep cone after cone after cone. If you're approaching it from a Buddhist point of view, you know it's just like it's a meditation on naturalness and artifice. It's great. It also teaches you how to read a magic book. Yeah, which is great because you really have to read between the lines. You but really there's have but to imagine. you have to read between the lines. But there's really when you when 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 it pops off the pages yeah. ah when it becomes illuminated you know manuscript you know it's there's no fat every word is essential to the thought it's really good yeah uh and then the last thing is uh when was the hardest time you were ever fooled and i've been saying that and what i mean is like when did you feel the biggest like most head-shaking moment of astonishment. Mm. Mm. Or a time that you have been fooled very hard. Well, the most recent and most pleasurable, uh, there's a brick vanish <laughs> in uh, Derek's current show, Yeah, which is really good. It's really good. It's just a really nice moment. So... And I'm st- I'm still not hip to it, you know. Like I've seen the show many times in different cities, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> that moment is just. There's a better moment in that show. There's a better moment in that show. What's the better moment for you? What's the better moment for everybody? Well, I really like that brick vanish. <laughs> I mean, that really. It's it's the last moment in the show. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's super good. You, you you prefer the brick vanish? Look, the brick vanish is it's tactile. It's it's of the earth, you know. It's 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 an immovable thing that is then whew, gone. And on top of the the fooling nature of it, there's two things that speak to me in that in that routine, which is the brick is labeled with this negative connotation so here's the you know he's going to make it disappear the way you know we can we can label something and it can have importance or we can we can just change the story and it no longer has importance and i think that's beautiful and i think the kind of melody of the soft music while he's building a card castle around that brick represents to me the hours and hours and hours that fat derek spent practicing cards at a felt-covered table to make that brick vanish, or at least cover that brick so he didn't have to look at it. I just think it's spot-on theatrically, magically. It's really great. Yeah, it's a good one. I think that's a perfect answer. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Elliot. Absolutely a pleasure. Yeah, sorry about Jack popping in here. Let's take that ending it's not, again. It's not, it's not the last time you'll have to apologize for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me to do it. I really appreciate it. 
I appreciate you letting me see you perform twice here. You, know? you got it. Yeah, you saw the evening show, and then he, you saw my my work with children. <laughs> <laughs> Your triumph. Yes. No, that was great. Thank great. you so much again. This is perfect. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash magicalthinking, and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels, and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers.